Rennie, you had a famous quote a while back, I think it was in the early 90s after seeing Terminator 2, that the $100 million mark is going to become the benchmark for action movies in Hollywood. Um, it seems like a long time ago now that they're making films for about you know, 250 to $300 million. Could you, could you have ever forecast that? It's, it's pretty amazing, because I remember when I said that comment about $100 million and a lot of people thought that it was kind of irresponsible and, and like, well, you know, he's sure not going to make that kind of movies for us because we'll never spend that kind of money. And now, as we know, you know, people spend $300 million to make a movie and then another 150 to market it. But uh, that's, the, that's the studio system. And sometimes, sometimes just like Sam said, sometimes it, it, it does seem that studios are trying to replicate the success of somebody else from the last year and the independent movies are reinventing cinema all the time and of course not every movie is a hit but uh, but it doesn't you know every movie doesn't have to make hundred million dollars it can still give you something fantastic Welcome to another episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the film podcast where we revisit all the movies that bombed in the theaters and didn't get a lot of love from all the critics. I am your host, Troy, and with me is Brad. Brad, how are you doing this Sunday? Doing great, man. Hey, you got home safely. I did. This is a little bit different. I mean, the last episode we did for Buckaroo Banzai, we had an amazing pizza from Domino's and uh, got to sit in your kitchen and record in person, which is so much fun. But now we're back to just seeing little, you know, boxes with our images in it. Kind of and we and we watched Blind Fury and had coffee, which is a first for me. Yeah, it was it was an awesome trip. Uh, you and I watched singles and then recorded the podcast. Then we got up that morning, had an amazing coffee. I gotta say, the way you do your your coffee is fantastic. And watched uh, Blind Fury, Threadgar Hauer, Show Kasugi. I, I found this trip so interesting because everybody I would visit. Um, and just spend a little time with, they wanted to watch a movie. So if you want to kind of know the type of uh, films that I got to see, I got to see Singles and Blind Fury with you, and then uh, spend a little time with our, our good friend Sammy. He and I watched a Donnie Yen breakdancing movie from 1984, Mismatched Couples. Had a fantastic time with that, and went to see our good friend Charlie, and uh, he introduced me to Psycho Goreman, which I think is coming out on Blu-ray next week, and I can't recommend that one enough. What What a fun watch, so... Got a lot of movies in on that trip. But hey, we actually, it's not just you and I this week for this episode. We were lucky enough to snag a guest. Do you, do you want to introduce our guest, Brad? Yeah. So we have buddied up with a podcast called The VHS Files. Um, and Josh introduced me to um, Eric through Twitter and social media and all that stuff. And I said, hey, here's a list of shows that we're doing. Pick one. And Eric said, hey, I would do Cutthroat Island. So Eric is joining us. Eric, how are you? Good, good. Excited to be here. Uh, glad to meet you guys finally. And, you know, we've had some Twitter interactions and stuff like that. I've listened to your podcast. I enjoy it. And uh, yeah, it's an honor to be here. Well, very I'm, happy. I am a huge fan. I love everything you guys do. I love your show. So I'm super excited that we've had you know, Josh on, but now you. So, and I'm, I'm really excited that you picked Cutthroat Island because this is an interesting discussion that we're going to have this evening. Thanks so much. And and I, I actually had not seen it. 
Oh, really? So yeah, this is a first watch for me. I, I actually remember when it came out and not seeing it. So for some reason, that's a memory I have, but I remember missing that one. So for anybody who... You had, and everyone else yeah, missed this in the theater. So nobody yeah. saw this one. You got a lot of good company. But if if nobody has discovered the VHS files, which folks, go listen to this podcast. It's one of the best ones out there. I mean, we're, we're the B wow, side. VHS files is the A side no. of the album. But no. uh, how, how would you describe your guys' podcast? Because there's a little bit of everything in terms of the movies that you tackle, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's really aiming for the VHS era, the, the, the video store rental era. Um, that's kind of the comfort zone that we're trying to capture. Um, but we, that's our main show and we do all these little side things with lists and some newer movies. And we've got a horror section thing that we do where we, we review some horror movies, but ultimately we just like to watch movies and talk about them. Uh, that's what we do anyway so we figured let's just record it and uh it's a lot of fun we, we we have a lot of fun arguing over ridiculous things in movies and you know we all have our different tastes and there's some interesting takes on that show some very yeah. interesting yes. takes that's yeah my favorite thing i mean about it. we're 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 not all just agreeing with each other all the time which is fun i i like the, the more we disagree the better uh as far as i'm concerned I agree. It makes it makes for good conversation. So we we do for every guest that comes on the show, we kind of like to give everybody sort of a baseline exercise. And I think it's best to have somebody kind of share some information about themselves, because when you go and review a film, you kind of know you want to know where the person's coming from. Right. So we have five questions for you, Eric. We haven't we haven't shared any of these for you. Brad and I picked these out specifically for you. They're designed for you. Um, they're also designed so that our listeners get to know you a little bit if they haven't listened to the VHS files. But I'm, I'm going to kick off the first one. So you ready? OK, I'm ready. OK, so first question. What is your favorite film from your least favorite film genre? Wow. Uh Least favorite film genre would probably be romantic comedies. Okay, here it comes. Okay, here good, it comes. Good, good, uh, good best romantic comedy. Oh, gosh, I'm blanking. That's a um, tough one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is a hard question. You got to open with this one. Yeah, um, this is, hey. What, what is, uh, oh, I'm going to cheat and look at my letterbox. Um, well, is there, uh, is there something that you have a fond memory of um, that, you know, you, great first date or something i mean I, uh, I agree you know what you. let's let's say um is it fair to put lost in translation in the rom-com category no it's not uh <laughs> it's that's a stretch i, I, talk, I, okay. I should just throw away the rom-com thing uh oh gosh i'm dying uh let's see here now i can't i don't know harry met sally when harry met sally let's say that Oh, good that's a good answer. I, I, yeah, it's a really good answer. I like that one. Any anything particular about that? Have you, is it has it been a multiple multiple watch for you, or you've only seen it one time? Uh, no, I've Ryan seen it a few or? times. I mean, as long as it's funny, as long as the comedy is in the romantic comedy, I'm good. So, uh, oftentimes they're really not particularly funny to me. So you got to have the comedy in there, I guess. Okay, okay, I like that answer, Brad. What's the next question? This should be interesting. Uh, if Hollywood made a movie about your life. Who would you like to see play the lead role as you? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, let's see here. Gosh. Is it Billy Crystal? 
Is, <laughs> oh my yeah. God, that's the meanest thing you've ever said. <laughs> no, I don't know. You picked when Harry met Sally. I didn't know if he, uh, she's Billy Crystal. Gosh, I don't know. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, is, is, does anybody, I don't know, I, compare you with a famous person? Well, Josh likes to say I look like uh, Matt Damon, but I, I, I don't, I don't see that. I, I think Robert Downey Jr. might be good. I'm just thinking of like an acting. You know who I was going to say, and I don't know if you'll be offended by this because he's like your quintessential redhead is Donald Gleasing. Yes. Uh, yes. Or, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. I know the, you're talking the guy about guy from Ex Machina. We definitely share resemblance. Yes, yes, absolutely. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, yeah. I was I was leaning more towards Fastbender. You got that Fastbender look to you. Oh yeah, I, I could kind of see that. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I mean, if this Matt Damon and Michael Fastbender had a baby, it would be you, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, Fastbender and I are very similar. Yes, yeah. very but, similar. But you, the size you of your hog. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question. This, this one's a deep one, so we're, we're going to test uh, whether or not you're a kooky person or not. So do you believe aliens exist? If so, what are they like? Uh, yes, but uh, I, I think they're probably just microorganisms and things like that. Unless you go like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't believe that uh, we, we're getting visitors or anything like that. So you're not like wrapping tips? There's no reason for me to think that. I mean, it's, sure, okay. it's possible, I guess. But, uh, so you want the but no, I'm really right? more of a grounded scientific person that's just... Uh, is there life out there? There has to be, right? But uh, other than that, no, I don't. I don't think people are getting. So uh, you, you obviously didn't read the fine print. We don't like math and science on this show. <laughs> so you don't like math and science. Uh, I listened is- to the Sunshine episode, and I happen to know that you do like science. It's <laughs> it very be a deal breaker. Son of a. All right. Today is Pi Day too, Troy. So math is all over the place. No, nice. Pi Day was just something made by like the companies to sell more math. So. Whatever. <laughs> it's a fake holiday. All right, Brad, you got the last one. <sighs> Two, yes. Which Mad Max film is your favorite? Go. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm going to say Fury Road, and I do enjoy the other Mad Max films. Um, I, I would say uh, Road Warrior would be my second. But uh, if you take all the best parts from all the Mad Max movies and – put it together you kind of get fury road i feel like my favorite part of road warrior is that end chase with the giant truck and all that business and let's make a whole movie like that and uh yeah it's a it's a it's a vision finally realized after decades of filmmaking and uh and i love fury road so i have to ask are are you sort of a collector of the physical media do you do you have 4K, Blu-ray, or are you digital guy? I, yes, I yeah, I I have uh, a, maybe like 1,200 movies, but um, as a collector, I'm kind of I'm always behind everybody else. So Josh is always picking up the latest 4K. Oh, I got this on 4K. I got this limited release. This that. I'm usually behind on that. Uh, I have a decent collection, but it's it's. It's not super impressive. <laughs> so with Mad Max Fury Road, they did the black and white version. Did you go out and buy that one? Yes, the the chrome or something yes. they call it. Yeah. Would you, um, would you think of that in comparison to, I would say, the theatrical version? Well, I actually haven't seen the, the chrome version or what is it called? Just chrome or black and chrome? I don't know. Uh, yeah. I've only watched it in color so far. And I, I love the colors in that film. So that's kind of been my 
sticking point. Like if I'm going to watch it, I kind of want the colors, but I, I've always been curious to go back and watch that, but I haven't. I, haven't I, I definitely would encourage you to do so. And from a graphic designing background, I would really like your opinion on that because I'm with you. My initial knee jerk reaction to something like that was give me all the colors. But when you go back and you watch that, the way that the colors shift in sort of just this monochromatic visual, it, it's super interesting. It's an entirely different experience, in my opinion. Um, and I could totally see somebody looking at that and say it doesn't work for me. But uh, especially given your background, I, it, it's something that I would, I would just strongly encourage you to look at and then report back to us because I, I would be curious. Well, I, you know, all it takes for me to watch a movie sometimes is somebody say, check this out. And then I just a movie I had no interest in, I'll just start watching it. So yeah, that's in my head now and it'll probably manifest in itself into a watch Sweet. before too long. Awesome. Didn't, didn't Logan yeah. do the same thing? Yes. They did, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I didn't watch that either. I don't think <laughs> yeah, Logan I haven't watched as, that either. Yeah, I don't think Logan was as successful as Mad Max, I think because of that color palette. Um, and I'm specifically, the, the scene that kind of sticks out into my head is that desert storm as it's coming in. The the black sure. and white really has a just a, a different visual to it. But, you know, for anybody who just wants to see, I, I kind of always thought it was sort of a gimmicky thing, how they are re-releasing these films and go, hey, we got the black and white version of it. It's it's another reason for people like me to go out and buy something. But, I, you right. know, I got to say the, the Mad Max, uh, the Fury Road, it was actually surprising, so. Well, one thing with that movie is some of the effects you can kind of haven't aged super well. And I wonder if the black and white version kind of covers up some of that, kind of hides some of the seams. I'm curious. Yeah, I, but, I think it does. I but, mean, I still love all the effects in that movie. You know, of course, there's a ton of real practical stuff, which looks amazing. Uh, but that's one of the things Josh complains about when, you know, because we should mention Josh does not like Fury Road. Such a bad take. Yeah, Love the so. dude, but man, that's a bad take. Uh, yeah. Oh man, he's full of them. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, he, he picks it apart. So, okay. Brad, last question. What is your favorite movie bomb that you would recommend to everybody? <sighs> you knew we were going to ask you that one, man. The, po yeah, the podcast is not a bomb. Should have done your homework. <laughs> I, I should I should have done more homework. I should have listened to more episodes with guests. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's see here. What was a bomb that was really good? Green Room? Was Green Room a bomb? Ooh. I don't know if question. it was ever con like expected to make a lot of money, but that's a movie a lot of people don't watch, don't I, know about, I think. And I, I think that Green Room was... Yeah, I, I actually, technically, movie. five million dollar budget, three point eight million dollar box office. So technically, a bomb. Yes. Oh, nice pick, it. Eric. All right. Well, hey, thanks for playing along, man. I always think that's Thank very you. interesting. If that we, was intense. <laughs> you you wipe the sweat <laughs> off your brow there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You almost got me with the rom com one. I was. <laughs> No, hey, you did good under pressure. You did real good. So listen, before we talk about um, today's movie, one thing I, I do want to bring up. Uh, have we said today's movie? We, we haven't. It, okay. But just, you know, if, okay. if you've downloaded the episode, it's going to say it on there, but we're not yes. going to say it yet because it's the whole anticipation factor. But listen, the podcast is called Not a Bomb, and we just had the Golden Globes, which I, don't, I didn't watch. Did you watch, Brad? Absolutely not. Do you even know who won anything? I, I have no clue, nor do I care. I, the Academy Awards are around the corner, I think, um, and it, that'll be interesting simply because of what was released. Again, I, I don't think the Academy Awards matter anymore, and I'll prove why. So last week, we discussed the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension, 
and one of the greatest performances from 1984 in the best supporting actor role came from John Lithgow. Would you agree, Brad? <laughs> yes, and not nominated. Yes, not nominated. But let me let me ask you, and I'm gonna ask you too, Eric. 1984. Do you remember who was nominated and who even won for best supporting actor for that year? I typing. I see you typing. Your I am typing. I am typing. <laughs> well, I've got it. I'll, I, I'll list it out. So yeah. Adolf Caesar for a soldier story. John Malkovich. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Adolf Caesar? A- Adolf Caesar. <laughs> okay. So, so yeah. like two crazy dictators, like just <laughs> come on. Okay, he, got it. He didn't win. I'm sure, he was nice. Nope, he didn't win. Uh John Malkovich for Places in the Heart. Genghis Stalin. Genghis yeah, Stalin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nope, he was not nominated. No. Oh, he Ralph, snubbed that year. Yeah, Ralph. Well, if this isn't the most whitest name, Ralph Richardson for Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes. Uh, this one's surprising. Nor- Noriyuki Pat Morita for The Karate Kid. Oh, that's right. He was nominated. Was nominated. Oh. Did not win. Did not win. Did now, not win. But if, I do remember that. Yeah. If we're talking, you know, The Karate Kid versus... <sighs> Okay, John, if anybody's going to beat John Lithgow for that film, it it would be Pat Morita. So I, I would have given it to Pat Morita. The person who won was for the film The Killing Fields, Hang S. Nyor. He He won that year. You could have given me a million guesses, and I never would have come back with that. Yeah, so this this is proof the Academy Awards are crap, because even of the list, A, Ralph Richardson, don't know who that guy is. But he should be gone, and you should be putting John Lithgow for his place. And then on top of that, Pat Morita did not win the Academy Award that year. That's a travesty. But listen, what we are concerned with, the thing that sort of drives this podcast is another awards show that we pay close attention to, and it's the Golden Raspberry Awards. And this is the 41st year for the Golden Raspberry Awards. And guys, I have the nomination list. Would you like to run through this real quick? I'd this love to hear them, Troy. Yes. Okay. So for the category of worst picture, this year we have 365 days, absolute proof, doolittle, fantasy island, and music. Have you seen any of these films? Fantasy Island and Doolittle are atrocious. So I've seen those two. Some of those I've never even heard of. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I, those are the only two I, I know. And I, I saw what is music like, I don't know. Why would you call your movie music? I don't know. Absolutely. We're asking proof. the deep questions. Yeah. On this podcast. Yeah. What is music? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm with you guys. I know two of these films, the other, the, so a name pops out of this absolute proof from one America news network. Mike Lindell is a producer. Isn't that the pillow guy? The, my pillow. Oh, no. guy? oh. That oh, is. No. Did he do a Whoa. documentary or something? I bet Whoa. you he did. Is, is this turning into some weird all right thing? Because if, if so, well, let's we go, need to Let's go step through off. the worst director list. We have Charles Band. He was nominated for all three Barbie and Kendra movies. Uh, Corona Zombies, Barbie and Kendra Save the Tiger King, and Barbie and Kendra Storm <sighs> Area 51. So Charles Band, which I've met Charles Band. I need, so, to, I need to see these movies. He's a really nice guy. I I don't know what he's making. Um. 365 days, the director, Barbara, but now Eric, full disclosure, I slaughter every last name ever out there. Right. So okay. Barbara Bialowas and Tomaz Mandes for 365. Oh, Stephen Gagan for Doolittle. Ron Howard got a nomination for Hillbilly Elegy 
and oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Shia for music, which we don't know what that is. Here's where it gets interesting. We're, we'll talk about worst actor real quick. Robert Downey Jr. for Doolittle, Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy for Absolute Proof as himself. <laughs> oh my God! Wow. I can only imagine. Uh, we are we are not doing that movie. That is not a movie we are ever going to do. So okay. never recommend it. Not doing not that doing- one. Uh, Michelle Monroe for 365 days, Adam Sandler for Hubie Halloween and David <laughs> Spade for the wrong Missy worst actress Anne Hathaway, the last thing he wanted and the witches. Oh, she got nominated for two films. Ouch. Oh, wow. Just a scathing indictment of Anne Hathaway. Katie Holmes nominated in for two films, Brahms, the boy Two, and the secret dare to dream. Uh, Kate Hudson in music, Lauren Lapkus in the wrong Missy and Anna Maria Sikluka in 365 Days. I'm seeing a trend here. Some of these movies are popping up quite a bit. Apparently music is not very good. Yes. Oh, we're supporting actor. This one breaks my heart. Chevy Chase for the very excellent Mr. Dundee. Did you guys even know there was a new Crocodile Dundee movie? Is, uh, is Paul Hogan still alive? Yes. Making oh, that's Crocodile. not that guy. It was the other Australian guy. I what was his name? It was Paul Hogan. It was Paul Hogan. No, yeah. the other guy who got stung by the stingray. What was his name? Oh, you're talking about Steve Irwin. Steve Irwin, yes. Oh, okay. Rest in peace. Sorry. I know where yes. your head is. Um, Rudy Giuliani for Borat. Rudy subsequent. Giuliani. Jesus Christ. Giuliani. Oh, there you go. Shia I Le- like that you mispronounced his name. <laughs> yeah. You. I mean, let's Sh- just stick with that one. Yeah. Shia LaBeouf. LaBeouf. Wait, was he nominated for Borat? Yeah, he for was nominated for Borat. Scene? Yep. Okay. Yeah. All right. We're supporting actor. Shia got it for the tax. He wasn't collector. acting, but okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger in the Iron Mask. So that's a Jackie Chan Ooh. film. There you go. Playing, playing, uh, not a bomb bingo. Go ahead and hit your square. Bruce Willis. <laughs> now this one's kind of funny. He was not Bruce Willis for anything he's done in the last 13 years. Well, no, three movies last year, breach, <laughs> hard kill and survive the night. There you go. Oof. And I saw he's in a movie called comic sands. <laughs> Co- comics, cosmic sins. No comic sands. Oh, okay. Yep. <laughs> He's in a new porn. He's in a new space porn called Cosmic Sins. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it. Um, We're supporting actor, actress. Excuse me, Glenn. He probably wouldn't try in that movie either. So yeah, Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy, Lucy Hale for Fantasy Island, Maggie Q for Fantasy Island. Now this one I support one hundred percent. Kristen Wiig for Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four, and Maddie Ziegler in Music. Music once again another nomination. Um, let's go through, oh, here we go. Worst prequel, remake, ripoff, or sequel. You have any guesses here? None? <sighs> remake. I mean, I'm I don't blanking, know. Dude. dude, I don't remember what happened in 2020 at all. 365 Days was nominated. Doolittle. Fantasy Island. Oh, Hubie Halloween. Which, what is that a remake of? Oh, they're counting yeah, that a as question. a, they're counting that as a remake of, um, Ernest Saves Halloween or something. What? Ernest Scared Stupid. That's what it is. Ernest Scared Oh, my. Okay. Yeah. There you go. And uh, Woman, Wonder Woman 1984, which I think should, uh, should win that one. Well, this is interesting. So the, the, <laughs> I don't think we're going to review any of these, Brad. I don't see no, anything we are not. here that um, Mike Lindell's not going to make it on the show. I know that. Mm-mm-mm-mm. I can only imagine what that is. I just, I'm blown away by that. 
This is kind of sad because a lot of these, most of the Raspberry Award lists, and when we talk about Cutthroat Island, we're going to talk about Rennie Harlan because that's the movie we're talking about tonight, Cutthroat Island. Uh, that man has been nominated many times. And usually these lists are a lot of fun. They're more fun than the uh, the Academy Awards or the Golden Globes because you will find yourself looking at big box office films that made a lot of money in some cases or ones that totally bombed um, but have some amazing directorial um, choices that are just horrible, bad acting, bad scripts, screenplay. Um, but this one just... Uh, it's so uninteresting. Although I'm happy Wonder Woman got two nominations. Cause yeah, it's terrible. an off year. I mean, you know, well, 2020 is getting a special governor's award for the worst calendar year ever. So they are nominating that, but Hey, yeah, let's get on to tonight's film cutthroat Island from 1995 directed by Rennie Harlan. So Eric, we gave you a whole list of films. Why, why did you pick this one? Uh, well, I, I, I think mainly cause I hadn't seen it. Um, and I, I mean, I like watching movies from that era. I mean, that's kind of in the wheelhouse of VHS files. So I just thought it, it just fit. I hadn't seen it yet. I was looking forward to, uh, checking it out. So it, it wasn't anything to do with like the director or pirate movies in general, Gina Davis, just something you hadn't well, seen from. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was kind of looking forward to the pirate aspect of it. It looked like a fun swashbuckling adventure seemed okay. like a, a fun one well this this one's pretty notorious because there's a lot of history behind this it at one point held the guinness book of world records for uh, biggest flop of all time since that hmm. it, it's been overtaken i don't know if they track that anymore but box okay office, okay yeah. I, I have to get in my, my financial hat has to come on okay so you probably can't because they always adjust it for inflation right so they say this movie lost adjusted for inflation, $147 million, right? Right. Movies now are too international to do that because you don't know what the, you know, the uh, inflation rate for China is or for Brazil. So if you're going to do that, you have to do it for all the countries that it's released in to calculate the inflation. So yeah, you can only do it domestically because it, you know, it, two and a half, three percent 3% a year. There you go. But yeah, other countries is. I have no idea. And I don't know about you guys. For the longest time, I really didn't pay attention to the box office stuff. I think Cutthroat Island was one of the first films that I started paying attention to what a movie cost versus what it did. Because growing up, especially in the 80s, you would always wonder why you would watch something in the movie theaters and just love it. And there was never a sequel. Um, or there were sequels to films that you just didn't like it all and you couldn't figure it out. And obviously money drives all of that. Cutthroat Island, yeah. um, especially in the mid 90s, was one of the films um, that Waterworld, some of these films were coming out where you hear about all these budgets and the stuff going on behind the scenes. And people, I think, started to become really fascinated with that and weren't talking about the quality of the film as much sometimes as, I don't know, the stuff behind the scenes. I, I was there a film that you guys kind of gravitated to where you started paying attention to it? For me, I, I find Waterworld and Cutthroat Island are the two that come to mind. Yeah, hundred percent Waterworld. If if you had asked me that question, uh, you know, before we watched this, and definitely Waterworld was the first one where I was like, oh, so. And it's funny because they're not terribly different in the sense of massive sets and explosions and stunts and water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot of water. That's true. 
Yeah, don't make movies on water. Like it's a bad idea, apparently. Oh, yeah. it is. And um, Brad, let, let's go ahead and dive right into it. Well, hold on. Yeah. Mine is weird because I remember the postman was like a big bomb too. And I remember like <laughs> oh, Kevin, Kevin Costner, Costner saying, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, it was a big. So that was one because you know I think that was like ninety seven. So I would have mm-hmm. been you know right at that age where numbers started making sense to me. So yeah, the postman. Yeah, and it's it's weird. You're getting into the 80s and 90s, and there are a couple of film studios, a couple of producers that are specifically, I don't know, ballooning budgets, and and studios are spending more and more money to the point now. You, I think we've talked about this over the last couple of episodes. You have a lot of movies and studios who might say, "Well, we'll give you five million dollars to make a small independent film." But then they're reserving the rest of their money for the two three hundred dollar or three hundred dollar two or three hundred million dollar <laughs> budgets, right? And and that's the kind of category movies you get anymore. A hundred million dollars in terms of a budget for today is kind of nothing anymore. That oh no, yeah, yeah, that's actually pretty small for any kind of burgeoning franchise. But thinking about it back in you know, late eighties to early nineties, that's a pretty big chunk of change. And studios were grappling with that. And Rennie Harlan specifically is one of the directors. If you go back and listen to some of his interviews, it was right around when Terminator came out. He was kind of pointing out that a hundred million dollars would not be a big deal for a studio. And a lot of people kind of balked at that. But Brad, if we're talking about Cutthroat Island specifically, we need to go back and look at what the budget is. And that inevitably is going to, um, I don't know, turn our attention to a specific movie studio. Because Cutthroat Island is known to have bankrupt a movie studio specifically. So you want to dive into this real quick? Yeah. So reported budget is $98 million, but it actually ballooned up to one fifteen. Um, and the box office take for a $115 million film was... $10 million. Holy cow. Um, so it lost a hundred and five million dollars. Wow. I will give you one guess at what the opening weekend of this film was. And remember the 22nd, I believe was a Wednesday. So it had like that long, like Christmas time too. So Take de- a guess. December 22nd of 1995. December of tw- December 22nd of 1995. So you're like right around Christmas. And uh, so take a guess. I, I don't, Eric, you want to go first? Uh, no. One dollar. <laughs> yes. There you go. Well, Troy's going to say $2 and went. Uh, so we're talking right. for a five day run opening weekend. And what was the total? 10 million. I'm going to say that 10. it made, uh, $3 million. $2.3 million. It came in 11th place in its opening weekend. Holy wow. cow. So I went over. Okay. You win, Eric. Yes. <laughs> So I, we're going to go through the films that came out in December of 1995 because I know I say this a lot, but we got some bangers going on here. Mm-hmm. All right. Beginning of December, we have Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. Great movie. Uh, yeah. Father of the Bride Part 2. Um, we have a Tarantino-ish film, Four Rooms. Yeah. We have Heat. Oh, yeah. Heat. December 15th, 1995. Heat. One of the greatest movies of all time. We have uh, Sabrina, which is a, it's a is remake. That, That's the Harrison Ford. Harrison remake. Ford, yes. Yep. And then we have J- uh, J- Jumanji. Sorry, Jumanji comes out on the fifteenth. Um, you have Dracula, Dead and Loving It. <laughs> Leslie <Troy>. Nielsen. 
I am not doing that. For oh, this we are doing podcast. that one. That movie's awesome. Uh, we have gr- grumpy, grumpier old men, which I remember seeing that on HBO no less than seventy-five times. Um, oh yeah, I love those. Yes, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, Baldo, it's like an it's animated, a animated film. Looks dog like, film with yeah. a dog. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, waiting to exhale. Yeah, it sounds yes. like uh, kind of big drama, yeah. right? Girl drama. Uh, when, uh, yes, yes. Um, Nixon. Tom and Huck, which looks like a Jonathan Taylor Thomas film. He was big. Yep. Yes. Dead Man, the Johnny Depp black and white film, I believe. Jim, Jim Jarmusch, right? Was the yeah, Jim Jarmusch. Uh, Dead Man Walking. Uh, Mr. Hall, yeah. Mr. Holland's Opus and 12 Monkeys. Wow. Oh, wow. So. That's an yeah, there's one. a lot. There's a lot. I mean, I think Heat and 12 Monkeys are like two of the best films ever. So. Yeah, so for them some to come out in there without two weeks is pretty amazing. So, so what uh, was what was going on in 1995? This, this is the segment of the show that you're in charge of, Eric. Right? So when you yes. guys are talking about the history of a film, you guys just don't go through like the box office, the budget, etc. But you're talking about what's going on that year. So, can you regale us with some information about 1995? Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, we like to. Um, we we like to get a get a taste of what was going on back then. So um, it's hard to talk about 1995 without mentioning it was really the beginning of the dot com boom. Uh, after some lengthy research, I found that Windows 95 actually debuted that year. Oh yes, yes. Uh, okay. A website that was a joke, you guys. Uh, <laughs> a, a website selling books uh, also came out that year called Amazon dot com. Oh, uh, it's a little independent company, right? Yes, yes, a little startup. And then, um, well, somebody somebody hopped on the internet via a 56K dial-up and searched Netscape nav- Navigator and bought the first ever item sold on Auction Web, which is now... You know, <laughs> it took them 12 hours to do all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, the first item sold was a broken laser pointer, listed as such. Um, what do of you course, do with a broken laser pointer? I don't know. He even said that it was broken in the in the post, and uh, it was listed for a dollar, and uh, it sold for I think almost fifteen dollars. Oh wow! So, okay, uh, all right. I guess it'd be a pretty good collector's item at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's worth a million dollars now. <laughs> uh, of course, everyone stopped to watch the verdict of the O.J. Simpson trial that year. Uh, like literally everyone, the the pause in work caused American companies an estimated four hundred eighty million dollars in losses. Uh, I actually remember being in eighth grade. I don't know how old you guys are, but I was in eighth grade and uh, my teacher wheeled out the coveted TV cart. TV uh, cart, so yes. That, so that we could all watch this murder trial uh, verdict. So that was a <laughs> yes. little strange. In this man who <laughs> almost cut his wife's head off and her lover, you know, allegedly. wholesome stuff. Allegedly. Yes, allegedly. Yes, I was in the sixth grade. I remember this if same exact thing. Does Dra- I remember fit. drama class and my teacher wheeling it out and we were like, what is going on? She's like, <laughs> yeah. OJ Simpson, the verdict's in. And I'm like, awesome. Yeah. We don't have to do anything for the next few hours. Uh, and uh, finally, Troy, what was Brett- college like back then? Oh, yeah. Oh, I just graduated from college. I, I graduated in 94. So okay. my first year out of college being poor, unemployed. Excellent. Um, yeah, well, I mean, finally, Brad drank too many Frappuccinos, which came out that year, and uh, Troy made a fortune collecting Beanie Babies. 
So, oh, you know what? Congr- my wife, congrats on that. My wife did actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a I'm a simple coffee Excellent. guy. Frappuccino, yeah. not my thing. But you like yeah. that? You like that authentic wait, Italian Brad, drink? He the frappuccino. Wait, from Eric, <clears throat> he's little lying. old Italy. He is not a simple <laughs> coffee guy. He will order his coffee and he will check the date of when the beans were packaged and go, oh, they're only good Roasted. for this long. And then he oh, grinds yeah. them and then he puts them. It, he doesn't even use like a coffee. Making machine. He it's hit. a Chemex, Troy. It's not that complicated. I, I know. It's it's, <laughs> it's. I don't know. Uh, he. I, I'm waiting for like the craft beer uh, in your basement next, and your goatee and everything. So, Brad, you're gonna have to teach me some of your coffee tricks. Okay, it, I will. It was Chemex amazing. Is the way to go. It was amazing yeah. coffee. So let's talk a little bit about um, behind the scenes. Uh, nope, you nope. skipped over my part. Don't oh, take I this did. from me, Troy. We've got the critical reception, don't we? See, we I need do. To, I need to follow the notes. Because not only is this a bomb financially, but critically, <laughs> it sits at 38% on Rotten Tomatoes oh my and goodness. a 40% on the audience score. But Holy I will cow. say, our boy Roger Ebert gave this thing three stars. Three out of four. Loved it. Well, yeah. you know, he loved it. He liked it. So, yeah, Roger can sometimes get them right and sometimes whiffs hugely. It's hugely? Yeah, hugely. Uh, read his Tommy Boy uh, review, and it will open up your eyes at how bad that guy does not like comedy very much. He called it one of the worst films of all time. I'm sorry. I'm still mad at him about that. <laughs> Hold a grudge? Jeez. <laughs> uh, yeah, Tommy Boy. Tommy Boy. If you don't like Tommy Boy, I'm sorry. You're just a weird You have no person. heart. I know. Yeah. I you agree have no soul. I agree. Um, okay. No, I, that surprises me. I would have thought the uh, audience score would have been a bit higher, but to your point, nobody has seen this. Um, and I, to, to be quite honest, I don't think so, a lot So of, can I, okay, yeah, one of the ahead. things I like on Rotten Tomatoes uh, is you, when you search for a film, it'll say, you might also like these films. <laughs> Listen to this shit show. Uh, <laughs> you would like Red Planet. Wait, is that the Val Kilmer's yeah, Val Kilmer, movie? yes. Okay. You right. were like King Solomon's Minds? I don't know. Oh, wow. That's that Raiders of the Lost Ark. The Stark, yeah, Sharon that's Stone. some swashbuckling, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So that, you would like K911, the Jim John Belushi film. With, no, that was just K9. No, this says K911. Was there a sequel? I, I don't know, guys. Are there 11 films? <laughs> yeah, this is the 11th one in the... Is it, are you reading that K-9-11? <laughs> yes, it's it's, a, it's actually a 9-11 film. It's, yeah. Uh, and then Alan Quartermain in The Lost City of Gold. Ooh, so apparently... That's another kind of cool... Yeah. 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 That, okay. Okay, so <clears throat> before we talk about sort of behind the camera, in front of the camera... I, I do. Is this before or after you go through puberty? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I can't let that go. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. You'll get there, buddy. You'll get there. Hang someday. in. I'm someday. Um, let, I want to talk about the production company real quick. So the the myth about this film, and you kind of hit on it, Brad, is you know this thing cost over $100 million to make, brings in $10 million. And I'm a, we, we even discussed how to say this before, and I always get it wrong, but it's um, Caralco Pictures. Is that how you say it, Brad? I was saying Carol Co. Carol Co. That's fine. So it it's a production company that ran from 1976 to 1995. So do either of you remember? And uh, Eric, being a graphic designer, I don't, I don't know if you remember the logo. So yes, Tur- they had an awesome logo. Yeah, it had the sort of the C 
uh, that looked sort of metallic that would show up on the, oh, yes. the front of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Do the yeah. laser thing, right? Where it would like, seem like it, it was, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Were, were you familiar with this production company? Were there any movies that kind of came to mind, um, right? You know, when, when you hear about this company in general? No. Okay. So started in 76 and just to give you a little bit of history in the seventies, they, they weren't doing anything very high profile. Uh, they were doing a lot of financing and producing some of the films that they worked on, um, future world in 76. So that's the sequel to Westworld. Uh, mm. the Eagle is landed. Um, winter kills silent partner. Those are both in 79. So, so nothing that's huge or groundbreaking, right? It's going to bring in a ton of money. The eighties are where it gets interesting. So, if you start looking at some of the stuff they started producing in the 80s, 1980, they did The Changeling. Have you seen that horror film? That's the George C. Scott one? George C. Scott, yep. It's absolutely fantastic. But it wasn't until 1982 where they just had a gold mine. So they ended up um, financing and producing a little film that's really started a big franchise, and it was called First Blood. So, yes, okay. Huge hit for him, right? Then comes Rambo First Blood Part 2. And that was in 85. <laughs> That's the title I think I've ever heard in my entire life. First Blood Part 2. Okay. Uh, Angel Heart in 87. So I don't know if you guys have seen that with Mickey Rourke, right? I haven't, no. Uh, Extreme Prejudice in 87, Walter Hill film, which we will review that one at one point. This is this is interesting too. They've also worked with um, Alive Films. So Alive Films are known for putting out two movies from John Carpenter, Prince of Darkness, as well as They Live. They Live. Ooh. Yes. They they did um, Pound Puppies and The Legend of the Big Paw. So which I start pictures. Uh, Rambo Three. They start working with Schwarzenegger in '88 for Red Heat. Um, they get Iron Eagle 2, and I mean, the, the list goes on. They Field of Dreams, Lockup with Stallone, Johnny Handsome, another fantastic film, The Wizard, Music Box. So that, that's the 80s. They're, they're you skipped one. You skipped Shocker, my friend. Shocker? What year was that? Um, I believe that was in 89, oh, the same year as right. Wes Craven. You're right, The Wizard. Yep. Okay. Um, then you get into the 90s. So keep in mind, 80s. The money's coming in. But to keep stars like Schwarzenegger and Stallone, um, they're throwing a lot of money. And they are sort of known as the production company that is paying some big salaries. But the 90s, it starts to get interesting because they do stuff like Opportunity Knox with Imagine Films. Total Recall, which is a huge hit, again, with Schwarzenegger. They, they paid Schwarzenegger like $14 million, right, for yeah, that film? for that. Yep. Um, they do some stuff like Air America, Narrow Margin, Jacob's Ladder. They do Hamlet, L.A. Story, The Doors, uh, another Dana Carvey, Career Opportunities. They did The Punisher <laughs> in 1991. So that was a home media and television distribution, but they were responsible for getting Oh, the Dolph Lundgren one. Okay, yes, yeah, yeah. Dolph Lundgren one. 91's huge for him. Big money maker. They get Schwarzenegger to do Terminator 2 Judgment Day. They follow that up with Basic Monster. Instinct with Michael Douglas. Yeah. 1992, Universal Soldier. Also in 92, they get to Chaplin. But this is where it starts to get interesting. 92 to 93 is when they're having some financial problems. So the 80s, they have a lot of success with these big budget things. Early 90s, they're coming in as well, but they're spending a lot of money just as much. 
So when you get into 92, um, they actually had to go through some corporate restructuring. Um, and they were doing some partnerships with folks like MGM, um, Lionsgate, uh, I mean, you name it. They're, they're trying to get cash and capital coming in, you know, basically to the production company. And one of the things they start to do is they start giving away their distribution rights. They start um, pre-selling. They start pre-selling, giving rid of, you know, rid of distribution rights so that they can get cash on hand to sort of fund the next film. Yeah, so what that does is that you kind of, oh, your overseas markets, you basically say, we need the money now. And we're going to, you know, that helps eliminate our risk, but we don't see any of the money after the film is released. So the pre-sale is all pre-production stuff. After the money's release, if you bought the rights for it, that money is yours. You're not sending any of it back to us. So, you know, they're, they're kind of, you know, needing that money to um, make some of these films because of the way they're spending. Yeah. 1993's Cliffhanger is a really good example to where they really didn't see a lot of money from that. I mean, they were taking um, cash on hand to sort of fund their next films. So whereas Cliffhanger was was a pretty big box office and was making a lot of money for the companies that were distributing it, Corralco didn't really see any of it, right? Yeah, and, $255 million on a $90 million budget. I think Corralco gets like almost nothing back. Yeah. Wow. So... And, and what was happening at that point, you know, from about 92 going into 1995 is the pre-sales giving away their distribution rights. It was basically to fund, you know, their next slot of films. So they run into a problem. They've got two movies coming up. One is with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Paul Verhoeven, and they were going to do a film called Crusades. And then the other one is a pirate film that they were getting ready to do with Gina Davis and Michael Douglas called Cutthroat Island. So... Ooh. Verhoeven, they go to Verhoeven and say, look, according to your budget and everything else, Crusades looks like it's going to go over $60 million. Can you guarantee that you can keep the budget at $60 million or less? Verhoeven says, no way, not for the kind of movie I'm doing. Now, keep in mind, out of that $60 million budget, I mean, at that point, Schwarzenegger's probably getting, what, Yeah, 20, 20 is going to Schwarzenegger. <laughs> so that's $40 million for a historic you know, action film. That's insane. Yeah. God, I would have loved to have seen that movie though. Yeah. And they, yeah, they had already right? spent like $13 million just on pre-production. So that was going to be a loss if they didn't do that film. So what they do is they say, okay, well, we've got this other thing for you, Paul, you can do this other film and then we're going to take the rest of our money and seek it into Cutthroat Island. So that's what's going on, you know, behind What was that scenes. other film that he did? Well, that other film is one that we actually talked about not too recently. And that's not a, none other than Showgirls. So yeah. Uh, they dodged a bullet there. Yeah. If, if you look <laughs> they at didn't. Yeah, yeah. 1995, they released three films and it was last of the Dogmen in September, um, showgirls in September and then cutthroat Island in December 22nd. And the thing about cutthroat Island is they had already pretty much filed bankruptcy at this point by the time cutthroat Island came out. So the common misconception is that Cutthroat Island just totally bankrupt this company. That's not the case. Actually, it was a lot of their spending going into the 90s and really their inability to control the money going out the door versus what was coming in the door. I mean, they made just iconic, huge films, but unfortunately, they, they just had a spending problem. And so when so Cut... So Cutthroat Island basically didn't save them rather than. Yes. So that them. was one of the reasons why they made it is to try to save them. Um, well, and another thing I, I read, and this is the most CEO ass CEO thing I've ever heard in my life. 
uh, Mario, what's his name? Vaz- Vaz- yeah. Yeah. He got a million dollars for uh, when the completion of Cutthroat Island was was completed. Um, and then, of course, you know, they file for bankruptcy and then he just moves over to Paramount and has, you know, gets paid again. So it's like, <laughs> oh, great. You know, <laughs> yeah. so the guy's making all the decisions. He just right. moves over to Paramount and it's fine. So uh, isn't that always the way? Yes. Yeah. It, and Failing it's up the American yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. And I think you said it exactly right. So Cutthroat Island, if it had made, let's just say it had performed the way that Cliffhanger did. Um, and they spent a hundred million dollars and it came back with, you know, 250 million and they didn't really release the distribution rights to it. That well, they had pre-sold $50 million to bankroll some of the film already. Right. So they were looking at this film, kind of putting it all in with the hope that it would come back and sort of save the studio. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, and, you know, really, truth be told, <laughs> if you file bankruptcy even before the release of your film, I mean, that, that's how bad it was. So the spending and everything leading up to Cutthroat Island, it, it obviously was the final, I guess, nail in the coffin. But you have to go back and look at everything that they were doing sort of pre-90s to kind of lead up to it. So they had some big hits. But if you go back and look at the list of films that they were doing, I mean, they, they did two Dana Carvey films that really didn't bring much in. They did a lot of independent films as much as they did with the blockbusters. But the blockbusters weren't making enough money to kind of cover all the little stuff that was going out the door, too. Do we know what what they filed bankruptcy? Was it Chapter 11? I believe it was Chapter 11. Okay. So, so reorganization, if you will. Yeah. I mean, 92, they were doing some restructuring. And by that point in 95, they're basically selling off their catalog and their assets to kind of cover all of their expenses and then sort of, you know, closing doors. And like you said, Brad, a lot of these people just kind of picked up and went to other studios. <laughs> so that's what's going on behind the scenes as they're making the film. Money is just flying out the door. They're putting all of their eggs in their basket on this one. And so they bring in director Rennie Harlan. So what... Eric, are you familiar with Rennie Harlan? I mean, is he a, a- I mean, I, I, I've seen, I'm not super familiar, but I've seen some of his films, you know, uh, of course, Cliffhanger, uh, right? Yep. Yes. And uh, uh, Deep Blue Sea. Oh, Long Kiss Goodnight, which I wanted to mention when we talk about Gina Davis, but uh, yeah, Die Hard 2. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't know that, if you before this, before I watched this and kind of familiar, re-familiarized myself, if I would have been like, "Oh yeah, you know, Die Hard too," uh, but yeah, I mean, I've seen his work. Okay, a good He's, bit of it. He has been nominated five times for the Golden Raspberry Award for worst director, <laughs> which is incredible to me. He wow. was he was not his first nomination is actually coming from the film we're talking about tonight, Cutthroat Island. His second nomination comes from Driven in two thousand one. He's nominated for Worst Director for that. Uh, he was also nominated for Exorcist the Beginning as Worst Director. Um, also nominated for The Legend of Hercules as Worst Director. So he's, I mean, the Golden Raspberry Awards. Um, oh, I'm actually, sorry. his first, his one, first was one was The, the Adventures of Ford, Ford Fairline. Yep. The Ford, what was that, Brad? Ford what? Fairlane, sorry. <laughs> Fairlane. <laughs> Fairline, sorry. That was my German, German coming out there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 1990 was interesting for him because he, that was his, you're right, that was his first award for worst director. He comes out with The Adventures of Ford Fairlane and also Die Hard 2 the same year. But he has a interesting, I, I don't know, if you go back and look at all of his films, he starts with uh, Born American, never seen it, but he follows it up with a 1987 film, Prison, horror film, 
which is actually pretty decent. He does a Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master, which commercially was a huge success for New Line. Then gets the gig for Die Hard 2, Adventures of Ford Fairlane, Cliffhanger, Cutthroat Island, Long Kiss Goodnight. You bring that up. But if you go on and on, I mean, he's he's done a lot of interesting things in terms of the action genre. Um, and right now, but what is what would you say like his through line is like, what's his style? Like if you were to tell me like all of those films you said, like to me, they are just like the most unconnected pieces of film I've ever seen. Like they have no kind of. I don't know what his motif is, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Sure. I don't know if he has a particular uh, look. Yes, which I guess is okay if you want to, like, you know, dabble here and there. But I I don't know. It's weird. He's not a a stylistic director. If if you were to ask me what kind of separates a Rennie Harlan film from, like, the 80s and 90s, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is poorly placed miniatures and key scenes because those stand out (laughs) in movies like Cutthroat Island and Cliffhanger. Uh, when the helicopter and the guy hanging on the uh, oh. <laughs> on the ladder kind of go over the cliff, and you clearly see it's a model and some little stuff guy <laughs> hanging on there. Uh, but outside of that, I don't, I don't necessarily think he has a visual style to it. But I do think that he works well within sort of the action film in terms of pacing, in terms of the scenes that he's creating. He's a very involved director because even when you go back and hear the stories about Cutthroat Island. He very much is looking at the scenes, the scenery, how to use that. He's working with the stunt coordinator. And he he makes very, I don't know if you would call him visceral, but there's a lot of momentum in all the scenes that he's shooting. So well, there's some pretty intense and very long action scenes in yes. Cutthroat Island. And you know, he's he's worked with he's worked with Jackie Chan. Not a great film, but Skip Trace. <laughs> um, but he's finding work now in uh, China. One of the films that he's done here recently, Bodies at Rest from 2019. I don't know if you've seen the trailer. It looks pretty interesting. But um, like you like you said, Eric, he, he is not a quick take or quick shooting style or what you might call like your, your shaky cam style. He has a very fluid direction through the action sequences. So I don't know if there's something that you would look at and say, wow, that's a Rennie Harlan film. But I definitely think that a lot of his scenes have scope. And he's not afraid to let the camera run for a little bit. And he's he's a big fan of letting his actors do as much of the stunts as possible. I mean, which we see up. a lot in this movie. Yeah, that'll come up definitely in this film. Yeah. Um, the other thing. So this is something I've I've always wanted to know, and I, I didn't know if you guys knew. So that's the director of the film. When we get to the story and screenplay, do you guys know the difference of when somebody gets a story credit versus a screenplay credit? No, because we I know talked the about basic that difference, but one time yeah. and we, yeah, I, I couldn't remember what it was. I know there is a difference. Do, you, do tell. Oh, okay. So story is anybody who worked on a treatment or story outline. So if you did a treatment, if you did the outline, yeah. then you're going to get a story credit. However, screenplay is somebody who physically wrote drafts or scenes that are included in the final version of the film. So I don't, I don't know that about you sense. guys, but anytime I see like five or six names in terms of story by, and then we yeah, two people for right out of the gate, I think you got a problem. And in this right. case, you have four people accredited with story by uh, Michael Frost, Beckner, James Gorman, Bruce A. Evans, uh, Raynal Gideon, and two people with a screenplay credit, which is Robert Keane and Mark Norman. So two guys not even associated with the story by. 
Stunt coordinator, this is important, Vic Armstrong. We've talked about Vic Armstrong. Do you remember what film, Brad? Oh, boy. No. I knew we were going to say it. I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, Vic Armstrong. The Last Action Hero, 1993. Ah, yes. Yeah, done tons of stunt work. Anything you can think of. Do you want to be a farmer, Troy? Do I want to be a farmer? Yeah, here's a couple of acres. That's Uh, Sorry. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Way to go. Um, But that... Those are some key people behind the scenes uh, and working behind the camera. So let's talk about the cast, the people in front of the camera. Now, Eric, you already brought up Gina Davis. Are you a Gina Davis fan? Overall, yes. Although I I don't know that she totally works for me as like an action star, which I, I we might get into. Maybe you guys will agree. I You know, talking about uh, Long Kiss Goodnight as well, which, you know, uh, I, I, I listen to you guys talking on your nice guys podcast talking about Shane Black and um, and I'm a big Shane Black fan too. So like I, I was really excited to revisit that one. I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. I watched it kind of relatively recently. Um, and I don't know, something about her physicality doesn't really work for me, but I, I, I really enjoy her in, in most things that she's in. Yeah. She, she tried the action stint uh, back in 95, 96. I mean, back to back cutthroat Island, long kiss goodnight. Up to that point, she was known for dramatic and uh, comedic roles. She won Best Supporting Actress in uh, 1988 for The Accidental Tourist, which is an amazing film. Um, And she was nominated for Best Actress in Thelma and Louise. So if you look at everything leading up to Cutthroat Island, there's nothing here that really shows she was, I don't know, an action star or even interested in that type of film. But man, she's been in a lot of different films. She's going to be in a film we're talking about this month, Quick Change from nineteen. Quick Change, I saw that. Yeah. Oh yeah, I love that movie. Um, and I, and the stuff she did in '85, you know, Fletch, Transylvania Six Five Thousand. Uh, I think she really got on the map with The Fly in nineteen eighty six. '88, so the year that she won for Best Supporting Actress, she had three films come out that year: Beetlejuice, Earth Girls Are Easy, and then The Accidental Tourist. <laughs> <laughs> that's wow. crazy yeah she's great in a league of their own too yes yeah. yes a league of their own that she's very good and did you ever see so that same year she did a film called hero with dustin hoffman that movie is really good as well oh really okay yeah check that one out um and of course my kids know her from Stuart little those films right uh, oh the trilogy they say the trilogy yeah then then we move on there's I'm only going to bring up a few actors. There's there's a lot of people in Cutthroat Island, but I feel like there's only about three or four to talk about. Yeah, that might be a problem. Yeah, so Gina Davis. For a $100 million uh, film, I don't know. Is your big lead. Now, originally, Michael Douglas was supposed to play the role of William Shaw, but he left because his part wasn't as big as Gina Davis. And Gina Davis wanted to leave too at that point, but she couldn't because she's under contract. But uh, and she's married to the director. She's married to the director. So for um, William Shaw, they bring in Matthew Modine. Uh, anybody Matthew Modine fan here? I'm a massive Matt. No, not really. Uh, he's fine. <laughs> I mean, Joker is one of the Sergeant Joker is one of the best roles. I think. Yeah, you know, I, I think of Matthew Modine, and that's the first thing that comes up. I mean, it's that's kind of the only thing that I think of, or the cowardly. Uh, Policeman uh, in the Dark Knight Rises. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah I mean, he's always been around. I, I feel like Matthew Modine's always been around. He would fit in our uh, maybe, maybe not our almost famous section, but he's a little more famous than that. But uh, I mean, he's worked. I, I like him in this. I mean, I think he's fine. I, thinking of Michael Douglas in that role, 
after, you know, certain other movies like Romancing the Stone and yeah. stuff like that. That makes a lot of sense. And that that could have been cool. Yeah, no, <clears throat> I, the movies outside of uh, Full Metal Jacket, I remember from Vision Quest in 85, the wrestling film, which is actually pretty good. But then specifically in 90, Memphis Bell and Pacific Heights. So the, um, I don't know if you've seen Memphis Bell before. It's the, no. I think it's World War II. No. It's, it's pretty good. Oh, is that the airplane movie? The airplane film, yeah. Okay. And Pacific Heights was the uh, Michael Keaton thriller where Michael Keaton moves in and won't move out and is terrorizing. I think it's him and uh, I can't remember the other female actress. It's really good. If you're looking for a good Oh, Melody thriller, Griffith. Melody Griffith, that's it. That's one to check out. Um, but he, uh, he wasn't a huge box office draw leading up to 95. I mean, he had, I think, three films come out that year. Bye Bye, Love, Fluke, and Cutthroat Island. And then you get to Frank well, Langella as Dog Brown. Um, <laughs> the only thing I know Frank from is Masters of the Universe from 87 yes, as yes. Skeletor. Yes. Uh, yeah, Skeletor. I mean, uh, he's an imposing pre- presence, I think, but he's good in Robot and Frank. Have you ever seen that one? More, 2012. No. Oh, yeah. That's a more recent one, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I these are all pretty surface level characters. There's not a lot going on. Yeah. I mean, if you want somebody to chew through scenery, then I guess you would go for Frank, especially after his performance as Skeletor with all all that prosthetics. I mean, I can't wait to do that on this show. I can't wait. Yeah. But leading up to this film, he did 1492 conquest of paradise, body of evidence, Dave brain scan. He was in junior from 94. You all just talked about brain scan. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah Brainstein came up. Yeah, um, Bad Company in 95, and then Cutthroat Island. He followed Cutthroat Island up with Eddie. But it, it's funny, between Matthew Modine, Frank, and even Gina Davis, I would have never pegged any of these folks to be in a pirate film. True. No, and not even Michael Douglas really fits that. It's, I mean, I, I'm having a hard time picturing Michael Douglas in that role. Well, one of the things I liked about Matthew Modine in this movie was that he he didn't overstep Gina Davis. He never felt like he was really, uh, you know, he he let her be the lead. Um, yeah. And I I wonder if Michael Douglas if it would have worked as well. And no, that, maybe that's it why he been left. more of a. You know what yeah. I'm saying? He's yeah. too commanding of a character or. a you know, personality or something, but maybe that would have made a better movie too. So you know, everything I know I've heard about, you know, uh, Michael Douglas is no, he is a, he is an absolute diva. So he would need all the scenes and all the lines <laughs> and all the attention. So, well, I, it would I, not, it have not have worked at all. I think you bringing up romancing the stone, even jewel denial. It's, it's a good, um, analogy because if you think about those two films with Kathleen Turner, and Dan DeVito, it's a great trio, but Michael Douglas is the lead of those films. So yeah. I don't know how, I, I mean, I could totally see him looking at this and saying I would have done it if I had more of um, that type of role from like Romancing the Stone. But if he's going to take on really what the script provided for Matthew Modine, of course he's going to walk. He just did basic yeah. instinct. I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, Shaw, Shaw is, is a, you know, a, a sidekick for, Morgan Adams, Gina Davis. <laughs> yes, that's basically, good. at best. 
I've only got two other people to mention. It's Maury Chaikin as John Reed. So he's the writer that's bumbling around following Morgan and everybody. I I remember him. I mean, I looked at his filmography. He's been in a lot of stuff, but I specifically remember him from 1990s Dances with Wolves as the major. So mm. I haven't seen Dances with Wolves in forever. Yeah. And then uh, my cousin Vinny. So. <laughs> yeah. He's, yeah. And then lastly, uh, Shayna the monkey is King Charles. Um, unfortunately, this was his only feature film, but I thought he was, uh, he was pretty fantastic. I thought you were going to say no longer with this. I was going to get really sad. Ooh, I don't know. Uh, I don't well, know. I mean, that was a while ago. I don't know how long those monkeys live. Uh, yeah. What kind of monkey was that? Is that that's not a spider Capuchin. monkey. Is it? Okay. Capuchin. Okay. Capuchin. So, we we talked it's about a, it's a frappuccin monkey frappuccin, okay. yeah frappuccin. I'm kidding. <laughs> we, it was a frappuccino reference. Moving on. Okay, yes. got it. I got it. I got it. Troy's a little <laughs> slow. You. I am Thanks, slow. Brad. I'm hitting puberty and I'm slow. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so uh, the only other thing I want to bring up pirate movies. So not a big deal. I <sighs> I think. Today, we associate pirate films with uh, really the Disney franchise, right? Pirates of the Caribbean. So when, yes. when we get some listener feedback, we, we had somebody kind of send in and say, hey, I'm excited you're doing Cutthroat Island. Uh, here are the pirate movies I remember. And I went back and, and just was you know using the internet. Well, what kind of pirate movies were out there? So here's a list of stuff in the 80s and 90s theatrically that are coming up. And I'm, I'm just curious, have you guys seen any of this stuff? Let's start with 1982's The Pirate Movie, which is sort of an 80s comedy take on the Pirates of Penzance starring Christy McNichol. Anybody? No. Okay. No. Uh, Nate and Hayes in 1983 with Tommy Lee Jones, big box office flop. Anybody? No. All right. The Pirates of Penzance, so it's a musical. So it was a 1983 film, music comedy with Kevin Klein and Linda Rodstadt. Did you guys catch that? Oh my, no, no. Oh, all right. You said musical, so I'm not watching that. Got it. Uh, Yellowbeard in 1983, which is a British comedy. I, I know uh, Michael Palin from Monty Python was involved in that. No. No, nope, still nothing? No. Okay, nope. you, maybe this one from 1984, The Ice Pirates with Angelica Houston and Ron Perlman. Science I have fiction. seen that. I don't think I've seen that one either, okay. unless I was a child. Uh, 1986, uh, Pirates, Roman Polanski film with Walter Matthau. Big adventure comedy, huge bomb. Anybody? Nope. Okay. No. Uh, Shipwrecked, Disney film from 1990. It's a big pirate film, kind of a big bomb too. No? No. So Carolco looked at all these and said, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> We're going to... It's an untapped market. <laughs> well, <clears throat> so Shipwrecked was 90, 91. Would you count this as a pirate film? Hook, Spielberg's film on Peter Pan? Yes. Yes. Okay. So that was that was a big hit, right? Well, I kept thinking of Hook while watching this, yeah. Yeah, and I, I didn't bring in things like Princess Bride, which had pirate characters. There's a lot of movies that have pirate characters, but not really yeah. pirate films. But yeah, you look at the was, 80s and 90s, I mean, what, what was driving somebody? And again, all of these are either family adventure films or comedies or musicals, not a serious action film. Well, I, I feel like Cutthroat Island doesn't really know what it is either. <laughs> That's true. Like, you know, it kind of swings back and forth. it feels like a family, but then sometimes it gets into some edgier stuff, but it never goes so edgy that it's interesting. So yeah, I don't know. I also thought of cabin boy because is that, a, is that a pirate movie? Is that a, is he just on a ship? I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that's a, I don't it's know. It's been a while. Yeah. I have, you know, I cabin have, boy. I seen, yeah. I've seen it. So uh, what's his name? Chris, uh, he had that. Team. Chris Elliott. Chris Elliott. Yeah. Okay. Yep. 
Yeah, yeah. God, and watch that for a while. I will, I will give a shout out. There's a movie my son and I watched. Now he's four, but it's called The Pirates Band of Misfits. It's from 2012. Yeah, that's a great um, one. It's um, Peter Lord and... It's very good. It's really funny. It's British, Wallace, Wallace but it's really Gromit funny. Folks did that one. Oh yes, yeah, Wallace and Gromit guys. Yep. Yep. No, it's oh, okay. Yeah. 80s and 90s, nothing piratey was real cuz all of these were box office bombs obviously except for Hook. Um and then the development right. for this film, obviously we talked about Michael Douglas was going to play Shaw. Uh filming had to start immediately and he wanted the same amount of screen time as Gina Davis's character. That didn't happen, so he walked. They went and they were pursuing a bunch of people for the Shaw role. Tom Cruise, Keanu Reeves, Russell Crowe, Liam Neeson, Jeff Bridges, Ray Fiennes, <laughs> Charlie Sheen, Michael Keaton, Tim Robbins, Daniel Day-Lewis, and Gabriel Byrne. <laughs> Could you imagine wow. Daniel Day-Lewis in this role? <laughs> yeah. They all turned it down, said no. Imagine that. Yeah. Imagine that. They all looked at the script and said, mm, nah, no, 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 yeah. no, thank you. Matthew, Matthew Modine, not the first choice. Yeah, yes. he was. Or the 10th choice. Yeah. And and he agreed to it because he. Also yeah, because he's Matthew Modine. And when your phone rings and someone says, hey, you want to be in our movie? He says, yes. Yeah. And, and well, he has fencing, but yes. He has fencing background, so he thought it'd be fun. Yeah. So, uh, Oliver Reed he does a little sword play in this. He does, yeah. And Oliver Reed, you know, a very well-known actor, was originally cast for a cameo, but was fired after getting in a bar fight and attempting to expose himself to Gina Davis while intoxicated. So they <laughs> fired him. Wow. It's a great little story. I mean, and, it happens to all of us, I guess, right? Yeah. And, and a couple of other No, Brad, things. it doesn't. <laughs> Do you know how oh, just times, me. Sorry, guys. Do you know how many times, I mean, Brad has exposed himself to me. <laughs> oh, I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. He's got so. a few tricks to me and, you know, it's, it's coming out. Pants come off. Yeah. So if you're, I mean, who knows what's going to happen on this show? Shooting was delayed. So that that's the development. They get into shooting. It was delayed for a bunch of reasons. Budget gets out of control. So Brad kind of hit on that, what they started with, what they ended with. Um, Harlan fired the chief camera operator um, following a dispute. A bunch of crew members walked. Uh, wow. Broken pipes caused raw sewage to pour into the water tanks where the actors Mutiny. were supposed to swim. <laughs> Does that cause scurvy at all? Like all that sewage? I don't know, man. Um, that's a good question. I, I Scurvy's mean, a lack of vitamin C. Yeah, I know, I know. Oh, it's okay. the only pirate. <laughs> it's the only pirate thing I could come up with. So, so thanks, Josh. Sewage, thanks for explaining my joke. Sewage would not cause a lack of vitamin C, is what you're saying. Yeah, I, it might. Okay, I don't know. No, it's are just, you a doctor? Are you a doctor? I'm not. Okay. The the filming on this thing is ridiculous. I mean, even after Douglas quit and uh, they were out, you know, trying to get Tom Cruise, Keanu Reeves, and everybody to to do this, they they constructed all these sets, and then Harlan came back and looked at it and said, "Nope, didn't like what he saw," and so shooting had to stop so that they could rebuild the sets to his specifications. So they were wow. just blowing money left and right. But this had a very troubled production. Did you see the part where he also put up a million dollars? of his own money to rewrite some of the script yes because the production wow. company couldn't put any more money into yeah. it yeah you so. look up bad investment in like any sort of financial <laughs> textbook it's <laughs> Rennie harlan putting up a million dollars of his own money so that i mean my goodness an hour in and we're talking about this film you've got a i wouldn't say a cast of unknowns but an entire cast of people not known for action adventure you have a director that is known for action adventure. You have a production company that is about ready to go under and is putting the rest of their money into this. Right out of the start, this film is having problems in development. It's having problems in filming. 
And then we get everyone wants to leave. Everyone wants to leave. If you, you read a lot of good articles, I think one of our listeners had sent an article to um, interviewing Rennie Harlan saying they, they really didn't want to make this film, but because of, you know, the contracts and everything that they were involved in, they had to. So this really didn't seem to be like a passion project for anybody. You have like a gazillion screenwriters and um, <laughs> throwing ideas to kind of see what sticks. And here we are talking about what is um, arguably one of the biggest financial bombs in Hollywood. So I think it's time to kind of share our thoughts on this thing. And I'm going to start with you, Eric. What is first time view for you? You came to this. Um, I, I just have to ask real quick. How did you watch this thing? Was it streaming? Did did you find a Blu-ray of it? Um, I I bought it on Apple TV because okay. it was four ninety nine to buy and three ninety nine to rent. So I bought it. Oh, so you you're fiscally good for fiscally you. responsible? Yeah, That's yeah. Right. All right, I'm I'm making good decisions. Uh, honestly, this f- feels more in the spirit of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride than the Pirates of the Caribbean movies do. Uh. It actually feels like a, uh, like a, like a stunt show, you know those like live stunt shows. Yeah, I kept feeling like this feels like a like a live stunt show, made into a feature length film. Like it's it's a it's a series of huge set pieces, kind of loosely strung together. Um, some of the action scenes are really great. I, I mean, really fun stuff. There's some good exciting moments although i felt kind of exhausted by the end <laughs> uh it just like it just wore me out a little bit but uh overall it's fun watch i loved all the production design stuff all the ships all the cities all the you know costuming and locations and and stuff like that uh was was nice to look at the the, the ships and the ship battle scene that was pretty wild um were, were you expecting uh- I don't know how much of the history you knew going into this film, but were you just expecting an absolute Turkey or did you have any expectations whatsoever? I mean, was the reputation of this film? No, I don't think I, I, I don't think I went into it expecting it to be terrible. I, I, I thought it would probably be middle of the road kind of action movie. It was actually ended up being a kind of a bigger spectacle film than I expected. I thought it was going to be a little smaller uh, you know, more on, on the line of like, I don't know, I, you know, just smaller in scale. I, I didn't realize just how huge it was. Uh, Cause it, it gets, I mean, gosh, some of these scenes are, I mean, the, there's some escape scenes that are feel like they just go on forever and there's explosions and things crashing and being destroyed. And it just goes and goes and goes. I was kind of shocked by just the, the scale of it all. Um, okay. What about you, Brad? Was this a first time watch? You know, I think this is the first time I've seen it all the way through. Um, I had like no desire to see this movie um, just because. That's a trend always, with you. You like see a lot of films halfway. Yeah. I, I You know, I, it's, it's probably one of those things where it was like on TV at one point in time and I saw a little bit of it and then probably because I don't think this movie is very good, probably left. Um, <laughs> I think like – Eric was saying, I, I, I think this movie is like a bunch of like vignettes kind of struck, strung together. And like the story is like in the writing and the dialogue is all really bad. And the action is kind of the thing to stick around for. You know, there are some really cool. There's a composite shot where Gina Davis like runs through that 
area and then onto the cart. And my only problem is, is like part of it's like in slow motion and she's talking while she's doing it. And it's like awkward. <laughs> so a lot of these scenes were like, it's in slow motion, but they're talking or they're, and, and, and this movie reminded me of it, of a trope that I hate in movies is we're going to have a sword fight, but we're also going to have a conversation for some reason. Like when I saw it in this movie, I'm like, you know what? I never want to see that again. It never plays well. It sucks. Can we not do it? It's like, <laughs> it's like the uh, trope of like someone with headphones on and there's like an explosion in the background and they don't hear it. It's like, it's on the level of that. Like it's just driving <laughs> me crazy now. Yeah, um, I think, I think Shaw is talking to her at one point when they're escaping and there's explosions everywhere. Yeah. You're like, and uh, she's taking like repeated haymakers to the face. <laughs> yeah. By some guard, <laughs> you're like uh, they're carrying on a conversation. Why don't you pay attention to the fight that's going on? Because you're, yeah. But you know, I there are. So I think the like the last battle stuff is is the best part about this movie. Unfortunately, you have to stick around for an hour and forty five minutes to get to that point. Like there is no reason why this movie is two hours and four minutes. Um, but I will say on the positive side they spent a lot of money on this movie and you can see almost every cent like in this movie. Like I did not in I'm just, Eric went first and he took kind of all my talking points, but the, <laughs> the scale and like the production value is all there. Like I was expecting, Oh, they wasted a bunch of money cause this and that, but no, like you look at those boats. Now I will say, the boats on the outside are really detailed and really cool. But when they go inside the boats, it's a little bit sparse and you can say, well, that's where the money dried up. But you know, a lot of these things are all practical and it looks amazing. Um, some of the costume design, like the red coats or whatever is, is pretty cool, but you know, there's too many villains. Um, one of the villains turns at the very end and you're like, where did that come from? I don't know. <laughs> you just want to be, you know, I guess money talks, I guess, but you know, this is not my favorite movie. Um, and I, I said last week, Troy, I was like, Oh, I like pirate movies. And then I started looking at pirate movies. I'm like, maybe I don't like pirate movies. <laughs> so yeah, that's funny. I don't know. I, and, I, I mean, and we'll get into it later, but Matthew Modine and Gina Davis together is, I mean, Eric's been on this podcast for an hour and 15 minutes. We have more chemistry with him than Gina Davis <laughs> and Matthew Modine have together. So it is, that's not working for me. I, I like Eric's description that this does feel more like a Disney ride than the Pirates of Caribbean film. I, I think that's spot on. I always equated this one to the film that we talked about early on, Brad, which was The Last Action Hero. And if I don't remember what the runtime of the last action hero is, I know it's over two hours, right? It's pretty long. Yeah. Yeah. And when I've watched this one a couple of times now, because I, I think I watched it just on a whim, uh, end of summer last fall, and then watched it for this show. And it, to me, it didn't feel like a two hour film, but the last action hero feels like a two hour plus film. Now there, there are things about the last action hero I kind of like. Um, and of course I'm buying the 4k when it comes out because of that commentary, but I don't know with this one. I feel like you'll know if you like this film, in the first 15 minutes, it's kind of like what we talked about with Buckaroo Banzai. So in the first, if you can get through the opening credits of this movie, good for you. Cause they are long. Well, they want to get their money's worth, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. But before the credits finish, you get a monkey right? Which you see in pirate films, you get pirate ships, you get a peg leg, you get somebody walking the plane. Yes. You get the beautiful Caribbean vistas. I, I mean, I agree with you. 
a hundred percent of the money is on display in this film. The locations, yes, are, gorgeous, yeah. right? And this movie, before the credits are done, plays into every trope, sort of adventure pirate trope that's out there, and you know exactly what you're getting in the first fifteen minutes. But yeah. is there a hook in this? Is there a hook in this movie? I know a guy has like a chain, but chain. is there an actual hook? I don't know if he has a hook. I just remember he's like missing a hand. Um, and has the chain to it, but also within that first 15 minutes, you get some just really shitty dialogue. So (laughs) (laughs) I, I feel like if if I took your balls, took your balls. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. That, that opening scene is super awkward. Like, (laughs) like have these two people ever had a conversation before? It's like two robots. Like I'm at Chuck E. Cheese and there's like a conversation of with, Chuck Entertainment Cheese and whoever's playing guitar. It's like, I don't know what is going on. It's so awkward. It, I, I think you know what's going on. If anything, this the script is very basic. It tells you exactly what's going on. It's, oh, you knew who I was? Well, I knew who you were, and I took your balls, and now I'm going to escape, and that gun doesn't work, and oh, hey, your, your dad's in trouble. Get to the pirate ship. I mean, the whole script is really composed of, I'm telling you what I'm going to do or who I am, or where I'm coming from. I mean, that that's the script. Uh, the script is there to kind of move you to the next sequence. Yeah, there's really no twists or turns or surprises or anything like that. It's it's really just A to B, B to C, C to D. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it only serves like we're we're doing this and we're gonna go do this because we're gonna go over here and blow some stuff up. So that's the dialogue. All right, great. And then you you get horrible dialogue in the beginning and then even at the end where you know hey bad dog and then she blows him out with the cannon right <laughs> but you you get all of that in the first 15 minutes so again same thing i would say with buckaroo bonsai if you watch the first 15 and 20 minutes and you go man this isn't for me totally get it first 15 and 20 minutes set the pace of this thing it moves and it goes from we're shouting a couple of lines and we're going from here to go get this next thing. And after we get that thing, we got to go get another thing. Then we got to go get the treasure. And then we got to go fight the bad guys at the end. It's overly simplistic. There's no nuance to anything. I I really don't think that there's, um, and we'll talk about this in detail, but I don't think people are performing in this film. I think they're surviving because they're doing all their own stunts and they're, they're not concentrating on the lines. They're concentrating on not getting their head blown off because of the action sequences that they're doing. Um, and I had a lot of fun with that. I, I think this is a fun film and it's one of those, um, <laughs> I, I almost equate it to like a direct to video action film, but it has the production quality of something that I, I don't even think the pirates of the Caribbean match in any of their films. I mean, they did a lot of CG work and I can't remember of sequences in pirates of the Caribbean that were as, I don't know, exciting and like, oh my God, did you just see that as there are in this one? There are some stellar moments for sure that, that I agree are quite entertaining. I mean, I, that, that first escape, or sorry, the, the escape with Matthew Modine with Shaw once that escape is quite long with that, with where she jumps through the window and lands in the seat and all that business. That was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, and like you say, it's, it's on such a massive scale that it is, it is fun to watch. I, I I wish there was just a little more there to make me care. Care, but, um, yes, make you care. But, I yeah, don't care just about anything. like yeah. it's you know, there's plenty of examples in other films where y- you do less with the spectacle, but it means more because of the story. And you know, I think this is, suffers from that, but it is fun. I mean, I, I guarantee 
kids would love watching this, you know, little kid playing with a stick. It's a sword. want to be a pirate. You know, if, if a little kid likes the pirate Caribbean movies, they probably enjoy this one too. You know? Yeah, no, that's good. And I, I totally agree. I, I think when we talk about the action sequences, I mean, that's the focus of the film. This, this movie is all about the action and specifically what Rennie and Vic Armstrong do, I think they take a page from Jackie Chan's playbook. So that sequence you're talking about with Matthew Modine and that escape, that feels like they're using the entire environment and the set in order, you know, to kind of have the action go along. Totally and, agree. Yeah. That well, whole, then there's a gimmick involved too. Cause he's like, is that the part where he has handcuffs on? Yes. So like, there's that gimmick going on too. So he, he's limited to what he can do because he's wearing handcuffs. So yeah, it's some, something exactly out of, you know, project a part two, Jackie Chan did. So of course, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. But <laughs> in, in the case of Jackie Chan, he is such a likable character. Just Jackie Chan himself yes. is just such a likable presence that, you know, I can go along with that more in a Jackie Chan film for whatever reason, you know? And, and, and I will say like Gina Davis in this movie, more, more gone, which Jesus Christ, um, <laughs> I, that pronunciation was driving yeah. me crazy. Well, that's uh, only, that's only how the one glass man yeah. called her that. Yeah, right? I know. I know. But it was, it was enough to where it was just like, okay. <laughs> he um, said it like 30 times. <laughs> he did. He did. Every time you, someone sees you, like if they said your name, it just gets weird. Like every time I saw Eric, I said, hi, Eric. Hi, Eric. Yeah. Hey, Eric. Rick. That was just and weird. Rick. But anyway, so like, like the whole thing with the father at the very beginning, like, it it should be sort of weighty, right? But it doesn't because they move past it so quickly and she like scalps him and that's supposed to be something. And then you're just that's like, pretty gnarly. <laughs> and that should be like something that's like played for something, but it, they move on so fast because they have no time to corner, to kind of sit with something to let it sort of marinate before they're like onto something else. And it, I think well, that to me is like a huge problem with this movie. You're right. Like that could be played two different ways. You could play it almost for comedy, like, oh, I got to take his scalp off, you know, or you could play it for this is really difficult for me to do this to my father who just died. Right. But they don't do it either way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not played at all. They just he cuts it and the guys go, oh, you know, I, oh, that's his scalp. Uh, and she's like, yeah. You know, so there's like the, much it. the revenge thing at the end, like it really doesn't have that much of a payoff because to me, I didn't really feel like she cared about her father. So doesn't she also refer to her father by his first name? First name. Yeah. yeah. It's, so that also kind of makes it's very it like millennial of her. No, it's yeah. hey, the, the script is the biggest problem of this, because like I said, there's no nuance to it. There's no character development whatsoever. Um, and, and to your point, Eric. Jackie Chan, I think what makes him unique, especially in those films from like the 70s, 80s, early 90s, he is Jackie Chan on screen. He's not trying to do anything except be himself. Heck, in some of his right. films, they even just refer to him as Jackie. I mean, he, he doesn't even right. try to you know use a different character name. Um, and, and those are fun because he's not concentrating on his acting. Now, he can't act. You go look at something like Crime Story or even The Foreigner, which I think um, surprised a lot of people. He yeah. has range, and when it's asked of him, he can deliver it. But if you look at his classic action films, at the end of the day, he's not performing. He is comfortable with doing the action sequences, and he's comfortable with being himself. I think the problem here 
is you've got Gina Davis and Matthew Modine and, you know, sort of everybody in front of the camera. Vic Armstrong and Rennie Harlan are just saying, look, we're going to do the sequence. You're going to do it over and over again. Um, and if you go and see some of the interviews with Gina Davis was doing at the time of the film, you know, they're showing the roles where she's taking all these falls and falling out of windows and doing this over and over again and all scraped up. And she's wow. just concentrating on getting the scene done. Um, and you know, there's something to be said for somebody who isn't an action star to let the stunt person do it so that you can add nuance to your performance. I, I bet you there's some cutting room footage out there that has those scenes. And then when they looked at it, they looked at it and said, it's not working, stick to the action. And probably the reason why it's not working is they're looking at the sequence and just trying to survive the shoot. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. But I, I think it still works at a surface level. I, I think if you watch this and you go, okay, I, I understand when I'm getting the first 15 minutes with that crappy dialogue and you get some just sort of breathtaking action. If you're along for the ride in terms of a surface level action adventure romp, which is some spectacle to it, you can really enjoy this film. And, and I got to tell you, I love that carriage sequence. And as impressive as the back end of it is, I still think it's impressive where they're driving that carriage along and she goes through that house and then sort of jumps out the window to land on the carriage. And then that ship just starts shooting cannonballs at the the building firing on their own city yeah, yeah. killing people do, do i not know the physics behind cannonballs I, oh they don't explode on <laughs> they don't explode on impact right everything like, is highly flammable wait a minute well that's where it feels like a stunt works. show yeah, yeah. Right? it does because yeah. there's so much pyro and like all this stuff going on and it feels like one of those stunt shows but no, I, I can totally appreciate like an action film on a surface level. I don't need everything to be, you know, nuanced per se. Uh, I just felt the length of this one, you know. Yeah. But and, at the end, that end scene is, is fantastic. I mean. Oh, my God. I what, want, the sheer magnitude of that final sequence. Those, those two, two boats ships. and they're just gigantic. And when that one boat explodes. Yes. Whoa, like, I paused it and went back and I was like, it explodes literally into a billion pieces. Like it is an amazing explosion. Yeah. And you know, they really blew up that boat. Like it is oh, like, yeah. that's it. That boat's gone. And, and that's, and you guys know, I love, I mean, we all do practical effects, right? Yes, I mean, yes, absolutely. you can, you can feel the, the magnitude of some of this stuff and you know, Credit where it's due. I mean, like the the scene where Matthew Modine is swinging towards the camera, and it's clearly Matthew Modine swinging at the camera. That was cool. Like, you got to appreciate that stuff because you don't see it very often, or you know, it's it's you know, we're just them know, standing on the edge of the cliff screen or whatever. Yeah, there's there's a shot where they're standing at the edge of the cliff, like going down those ropes, and you see the sheer terror on their face because they're <laughs> having to do it. Um, <laughs> Again, that's the stuff I like is I think from the action sequences, they're scared, but they're doing it and they have a little bit of confidence. But at the same time, you kind of see this look like, oh, my God, what am I doing? But mm -hmm. when they take a breather and they're trying to go through the plot, I don't know how you guys feel. When I see Gina Davis and Matthew Modine trying to have an exchange, you know, when he's taking the bullet out or something. All I can see on their faces is they're thinking about, oh, my God, what is Vic or Rennie having me do tomorrow? <laughs> I've got to, like, jump off a cliff. They're not thinking about what's going on in the moment. They're in their <laughs> head probably just prepping for how they're going to survive the next day. At least that's how I feel watching their performance. Well, because even when he's, like, prowling around on her insides for that bullet, she's just like, ow, ow, 
ow. And you're like, um, I think it might hurt a little bit more than that because he's like literally inside of you. So can we, you know, ramp it up just a little bit? Well, I, you know, I kind of wish they, I mean, I don't love the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. I don't think I've seen, I think I've seen the first two, maybe the third one. I don't even know how many there are now, four or five. I think there's five. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I kind of gave up on those. And actually after watching this, it makes me want to watch that first one again, uh, just to kind of see you know, if I'm remembering it correctly, but there's a good bit of humor mixed in with, in those films. And I feel like that we could have used more humor. They, they do have humor in this. They attempt I, humor. Yeah. There are moments. I mean, I like how, uh, Modine kept getting smacked in the back of the head. I oh loved God, that yes. gag. And I wanted that to keep going. I wanted more smacks in the back of the head. Maybe he gets to smack a guy in the head at the end, you know, like a, I mean, but that's almost too subtle. Like it, it is. That's what I'm saying. Like and and like when when he's digging in her uh, wound and and he's like sorry. Like that kind of how sorry. What is this what he says? Sorry. Or, yeah. Oops. Or I don't know. But yeah, there's there's uh, there could have been more humor there. I feel like that always works well with or in my in my you know experience like something like Princess Bride where there's maybe not that silly but there's there's some some fun with it. More fun. Well, it's funny you bring up uh, Matthew Modine. I mean, that that was a note I wrote down. He's always getting smacked in the head. I thought it was pretty <laughs> funny. To Brad's point, it's super subtle. But he really, I don't know if you guys caught on to this, he really gets smacked in the head. With by that, a barrel. By that oh, barrel. barrel. He just about yes, takes his that. head out. I, every time I see that scene, I'm like, how is that man alive? It looked <laughs> so painful. <laughs> it hits him so hard. And like... You see him really stumble, and I'm like, oh, my God. It might have knocked him out. Well, yeah, somebody had mentioned it on your Twitter post, The Barrel. So Yes. And and I kind of forgot that I read that because I didn't know about it. And then it happened, and I'm like, there it is, The Barrel. And And I I thought The Barrel was going to explode. I'm surprised. (laughs) It's the only barrel that doesn't explode in the whole movie, I think. Yeah. It's the only barrel not filled with gunpowder in this movie. <laughs> yeah. It was crazy. And I, I'm, I know it wasn't intentional I, because he's getting smacked in the head. But then I'm sure they weren't like, hey, look, when the explosion comes off, have that barrel come and hit Matthew. Me- <laughs> I mean, that, it wasn't planned that way. But the no. fact that it happened and it was left in the film made me laugh even louder because it kind of fits with that running gag. So um, just the performances in general, I, I don't want to like crap all over it. There, there are a couple of things I did like. Um, Gina Davis, I, I actually think she is a, I'm going to use the, the term loosely. She can be charismatic. She has no problem sort of delivering the smile and that, and, and, you know, the reason why she's a good dramatic and comedic actress is I think she has personality. It yeah. tries to come out. And when she flashes that smile, it's fun and she can move into the action very easily, but I think this is a case where, and and you nailed it, Eric, they didn't write anything fun for her to say, and the script is just bad. So I'm sure she's looking at this and going, I don't know how to do this outside of just give the line. because there, Right, I mean, we know here. Gina Davis can be great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, yeah, I mean, just going back to the action thing, I mean, I, I just don't, I feel like she doesn't pull off the action stuff all that well. Uh, you know, when she's the trained spy killer person in, in uh, <clears throat> Long Kiss Goodnight. Just, I don't know. I don't really buy it there either. I, I like my Gina Davis to be more like her no- roles that she's known for, you know, a, a, a smiling, happy, you know, fun presence, you know. 
This is going to be really mean for me to say. So I'm going to go ahead and say it. All right. Uh, <laughs> in this movie, it feels like a coach's son situation. So Rennie Harland uh, and her were married. <laughs> so she is the coach's son in this situation that she's playing only because she's the coach's son or the director's wife. Cause she's not good in this movie at all. Like, I don't think she's great or even good. I just, I, I just, I don't know what it is. It, I mean, I, obviously the script is holding her back because I I've seen her do good work uh, this is just not it. And, it, yeah. and it's disappointing that they could have done something in 1995 with having a female lead pirate be interesting, but they completely throw that out the way for these action sequences and pretty much nothing else. So, you know, it's disappointing to see her not know what to do and then struggle with everything else. Cause I know, I know it was probably grueling on her because she's doing her own stunts and literally she's probably one step away from death because, you know, there's barrels flying at her and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, it's I, I don't know. She's not good in this movie, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea of a, a, a like you say, there weren't a ton of female lead led action films back then or, you know, today. And, uh, <laughs> well, well, we had well, a big bunch Hold of them on. recently but <laughs> no that's so let me let me correct that statement there weren't a lot in the united states in the american okay. film uh, yes. okay hong kong man <laughs> we're talking about the united states i understand <laughs> but this this is one of the things that i i wrote down as a question for you guys so we we see emergence of that now i mean you know sure. Charlie Theron and and atomic blonde stuff like that you see more right. you know the the fast and furious movies whatever you think of them you've got some strong female action fury road yeah fury road yeah. charlie's there and again they they are few the, old, the, the old guard <laughs> yeah imagine charlie's there in this movie I, amazing i think it would be yeah i think it would be up a notch but <laughs> again i i think of folks like um at this time you had cynthia rothrock who were was doing a lot of direct-to-video stuff now she is a martial artist that um really was not that great at acting, but oh my God, could she kick people in the face like you wouldn't believe. And so most of the time in Hollywood, I think you are kind of, <laughs> I hate saying this, you're, you're kind of pigeonholed. You either have a skill as a stunt person or a martial artist, you can, you can carry yourself that way, but you lack in the acting. Or you can do a lot of the acting, but you don't carry yourself within the action sequences, or you look uncomfortable doing the action sequences. I think that's always a problem, not just for female stars. It, it's for any actor or actress. You do sure. have some that come along. I mean, I, I got to do the obligatory Tom Cruise reference, but if you look at what he's doing now with the Mission Impossible scenes, he's a good actor and he's doing some amazing stunt work and he's comfortable in both. That's well, a there, rare there find. sort of came a point where, you know, like with the Matrix and things like that, where you started you know, the, the whole action hero being, you, you wouldn't start as a, as a stunt person or a martial artist. You don't necessarily have to mine those, those uh, industries anymore. Like you just teach the actor how to do that stuff. Right. Um, and I, you know, I'm trying to like contextualize the timeline of, of that kind of <laughs> stuff, but yeah, it doesn't feel like she's comfortable doing some of the stuff she's doing. It's, well, you it, kind of mentioned it earlier. Like, I think the, that transition was like 
with the Bourne series. So when Matt Damon became an action star, it was like, oh, anyone could be an action star. Yes. You want to just take a good actor and then teach them the action parts. But here's right. what here's what I like about her in Cutthroat Island. Here's here's why. So I'll I'll talk John Wick for a second. The John Wick films are great action films, but at some point when you get to John Wick three, four, whatever they're on, a lot of his moves and everything else. Keanu Reeves is very competent action. <laughs> he can do the choreography very well, but it looks very slick. It looks very mechanical. It looks very planned. Mm-hmm. There is something to be said about somebody who's doing the action sequences and there's a little bit of sloppiness to it. There that's where the realism comes in. Mm-hmm. That's what I like that's about that's what I like about Cutthroat Island is I believe Gina Davis doing those things because she is A doing those things and A it looks like a you know an actor or actress doing those things. It doesn't look as slick and choreographed. It almost looks like Again, Vic and Rennie are going, we're going to plan out these sequence, we're going to do this, and they're not going for that slick presentation where everything goes right. I mean, Matthew Modine gets you know smacked in the noggin with a huge barrel. There's a lot of sloppiness going on. I don't know if that's planned or that adds to a little bit of the realism. You, you guys may look at that and go, well, I don't think she handles the action very well, and I don't think you know she handles it from a um, – acting perspective i kind of think the acting yeah i'll give it to you but there's not much of a script there's zero character development it's all stereotypes and again it's people delivering lines of like what they're going to do who they are where they came from and where they're going that's all the script is but yeah i i certainly agree that they don't give her much to work with yeah but the action choreography and how she carries herself through those scenes i think she's actually really good i like her in this more than i like long kiss good night i think the set pieces are are more impressive but I really like sure. what she's doing. I like all of the, I, I like watching her. I like watching her reaction. There, there's fear <laughs> and there's, um, I, I don't know when she does something right, you can kind of see that in her face too. But I, I, you know, maybe I'm in the more minority of this. I, I like her better and I like Keanu Reeves and John Wick because John Wick looks. Come cool. on, dude. Come on. I'm just saying from a, from a glossy. I love it, Troy. I love it, Troy. <laughs> I'm just saying. I, John, make, a, make a statement yeah, like that. When you get to John Wick and you're watching choreography and martial arts, it looks good. I'm not saying it's not impressive, everything he does. But at the mm-hmm. same time, it looks choreographed and rehearsed over and over again. This one looks a little bit more realistic. Now, I, I will say the last John Wick movie where he did with Mark Dacascus, that I think was some of the best action he's done. But again, if you look at, I think it's Parabellum and go, oh my God, that movie's so amazing and da da da. Dude, that is another theme park ride. All it is is action. There is no script. It's we're going to go from here, 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 and then here's your plot twist. That's all that movie is. There's really no difference from a screenplay perspective of Cutthroat Island than the third John Wick film. Now, the first John Wick film, I think, has a little bit more to it, but now it's just about Keanu Reeves doing action sequences. This yeah, I agree. I, all I really care about is the first one. I, I also agree that you know, things not being so polished and perfect it is can be a good thing. I, I agree with you there. I, I like watching older movies for that reason. I like gunfights that, you know, aren't like, you know, gun, gun foo and all that kind of crazy, like business. Uh, you know, I like things that feel a little more natural and real life isn't so, so perfect like that. So I, I agree with that. Um, yeah. I, I yeah. have an analogy. I have an analogy. So we were talking about music before we started recording you, or a built a spill fan. So I yeah. do when they do their sets 
do they have a pre-planned set or is it just like every night they're doing something different? Uh, you know? they, I think they just have a different set list. Yeah. So that show. to me, when I go to a concert and it's like uh pro jam does this. So every night they do a completely different set. It's like, right. they're going to make mistakes and it's going right. to be a little bit less perfect, but you never know what's going to happen. Like, yeah, I Eddie saw forget the words. Yes. Uh, yes. Every night he's going to forget <laughs> words, uh, you know, and then like, I saw tool play recently. Well, not recently, but like 18 months ago. And it's like, they do their set lists, you know, it is planned out and they are perfect on the note every time. And they both have their merits, but I always like when I don't know what's happening next. So I think Troy is like the point you make is, is I see it, but I'm not going to go ahead and say that, you know, Gina Davis is better than Keanu Reeves in action or anything like that. But no, I get your point. But I well, do think there, there's a, some merits to that. Yeah. I mean, an example for me, as you guys know, I love Die Hard. I feel like the action Die Hard feels more realistic. Yes. And less scripted uh, than something obviously like John Wick or something where every, every move is perfectly, you know, it, it feels like a street fight. You know, uh, and they're really throwing down. Uh, so yeah, I, I see that for sure. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I totally felt that sort of like grit in this film, but um, no. And it, but, I, I agree with you. I, I think you were the one on the podcast when you talked about Die Hard when Bruce Willis is punching uh, Carl and just cussing at him at the same time. I mean, that that's exactly the type of greediness you get from that type of sequence, and it does yeah. feel real now. I'm not saying Cutthroat Island is like the, a gritty sword fight pirate film. It's no. not that. There, there's choreography. You can see it. But what I like about it is, and again, I'm not crapping on John Wick. I watch those, I've watched them all over and over again. There just comes a time where you kind of go, hey, I like that polish. However, what's always, um, I don't know, attracted me to the to the Hong Kong films of the 80s and 90s is they they had a little bit of – Yep, we're going to choreograph it, but things are going to go wrong. And as it goes, you just go with it and you keep going and you got to sell the punch. You got to sell the reaction, everything else. I think Cutthroat Island has a little bit of that. I, I think why I'm, I gravitate to Cutthroat Island a little bit more than a Pirates of the Caribbean or something else is it reminds me a little bit of maybe the Hong Kong action films that they were doing in the 90s. It makes total sense to me that Rennie Harlan now is looking at China and going, hey, I kind of want to make movies over there now. China isn't making the movies that they were making in the 80s or 90s, but if if you're trying to bring that back, that's the place you would go to. Well, I know you 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 know certainly a, a, a lot more about Hong Kong films and 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 that stuff just from what I've heard than I do. But and I never would have made that connection with this, but now that you say it, it does really make a lot of sense. I mean, thinking about the action particularly and some even like some of the slow mo shots and things like that, uh, like wide shots, uh, you know, that really he does let the and that, that checks out. Yeah, that's the Rennie Harlan. I, I think if you even go back to Die Hard two, etc. Rennie Harlan doesn't have a style per se to where he's stylistic, but I do think if you look at some of his you know eighties and nineties work, you would say, okay, he, this guy must be watching you know some Asian cinema to some degree. He's not afraid to let the camera roll and his actors do the action. And again, I, I think Cutthroat Island, <laughs> if he were making this for Golden Harvest, it he would you'd you'd have a 
I don't know. I don't want to say you'd have a different film. I, I think you'd have the same DNA. You probably have a different film. <laughs> I, th I think you'd have a, a lot more. Um, I, I don't know explosions and people getting knocked around. A lot more safety thrown out the window. But inherently, you would have the same action set pieces. You would have the same kind of clunky script, and it would just be moving from. I mean, you don't go and look at the '90s and '80s Hong Kong films from a script perspective. Heck sure. no, you want to see people throwing themselves off the building and getting blown up and slow motion gun sequences because it's all cool. Yeah, I guess it's all surprised. about context, you know? Yeah. yeah, I was actually surprised how little cutting there is in this movie. I guess because, you know, when you're looking back on it in 2021, we're used to, you know, action scenes being cut up really fast. And, and yeah. here, everything does breathe and, and take time and you can kind of see the the actual motion of the scene. Um, so, you no, know, I do like that. Um, I do miss those days. Uh, I just wish it was a little better, but you know, whatever. <laughs> well, you get, you get some fantastic aerial photography and that sweeping camera going over again, the Caribbean Vista with the set design. Um, now <laughs> the problem is that stuff is so good when the models come in, you can really see it. So that rowboat sequence when they, you know, uh, Gina Davis and her crew have to go into the rowboat and it's they're in a storm and you see the rocks, that is just piss poor modeling being thrown around in a bathtub. Um, and it looks horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's Rennie Harlan saying, well, we can't, you know, afford doing this out in the ocean and the insurance. Yeah, they can't wait for us, so we're going to we're going to throw a hurricane a to come. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In the bathtub. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I. That's what I equate this film to. Is this has a lot of Hong Kong DNA to it for a mid '90s film. Put, put putting it through that lens is interesting. I, I like that. I like that. I like that take. For um, sure. The other thing I was going to ask you guys about is the music. So to me, you can't have a good pirate film without a good pirate score. What did What did you think about this one? To me, it was just okay. Like I wasn't blown away by it. Like I don't know. It was fine. It was fun. It was fine. I. It didn't really. I. It didn't uh, catch my attention all that much, um, but it felt appropriate. Yeah, I agree. It, it doesn't have the nuance and maybe the catchiness to the Pirates of the Caribbean theme, but I'll say that John Debney's composition, it, it fits the action and kind of helps the momentum going. So I'm, I'm glad that you kind of get that sweeping orchestra that sort of crescendos yeah, at the action films. And, mm -hmm. and again, it's not something I'm going to run out and just buy – um, but I, I think it, it was good. I, I, I enjoyed it and it, it didn't overpower the scenes, but it felt you know, there's, there's something about a good composition, especially in an action film. I mean, we talked about this with the man from uncle. I love that soundtrack, but the music just really fits the tone of that film and just really helps with the action. I, I don't think this score is at that level, but I, I do appreciate that, um, you know, they, they hit the mood and the tone of it and it works, but I don't know if I'd run out and buy the soundtrack to it. Yeah. Sometimes music can be like, if it's fine and it, and you're, and it doesn't like offend you while you're watching the, the actual scenes and stuff, it's good. It's, it's the bad music that like really makes things worse. So, you know, as long as it's not bad music, I think I'm good. Like most of the times it's forgettable, which is okay. Cause it just means it just kind of comes and goes. It's right, it's not stuff. sticking out and yeah, drawing yeah. attention away from what's happening necessarily. <clears throat> what about just feeling the, it? What about the quicksand? I mean, you can't have a pirate adventure film without quicksand. No. Was I the only one growing up that thought like quicksand was going to be like more of an issue in the <laughs> world than it actually is? Like, I thought 
There's going to be a point in my life where I'm going to be caught in quicksand and someone's going to have to come save me. But the I, funny thing is, spoiler you, alert, I've never been in quicksand. You're totally right. And I think it was just such a big part of movies and cartoons and everything. Yeah. But not only is it really not an issue, despite that, we still were constantly given, shown ways to get out of it if it did become an issue. <laughs> right? I mean, I feel like there's, there, I learned more about getting out of quicksand than I did about sexual education as a child. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, Something yes, that's exactly really important. actually important. Yeah. Well, um, here's here's the science of quicksand, since you know how much we like science. Okay, I, here goes. Yeah, I finally looked this up. I'm like, really, is quicksand that big of a deal? Because like you guys said, it in a lot of the adventure films that I, I saw growing up, I'm like, wow, you got to watch out for quicksand. You see the signs like, hey, watch out for quicksand. You're going to die here. So I, I finally looked it up. It here, here it is, right? So science portion of Not a Bomb. It is impossible to be completely submerged in quicksand because humans are less dense than quicksand and a person would only sink to their chest before they begin to float. You will never <laughs> drown in quicksand. That's interesting. Okay, that's so I don't have to worry about quicksand is what you're telling me. Well, that's not well, true. Well, you could get stuck there and, suff- and, and starve or something. Yes, Whoa. so the true killer okay. of quicksand victims is exposure or possible yeah. drowning in nearby rising tides. So it's not the quicksand yes. that kills you, but it's all the things <sighs> that happen because you're stuck there. I thought you were going to tell me like there's some snake that lives inside quicksand that was just going to start eating me or something like that. So quicksand okay. snake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm good. I'm good with drowning this as long as it's not a snake. It's not Dune, Brad. You're you're fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, what other thoughts? I mean, it's it it's not a deep film. You can't really discuss the meaning of life or piracy on this one. I just want to reiterate that boat blows up so well. It might be <laughs> oh. one of the best explosions I've ever seen in my it entire blew my life. hair back, dude. I, I oh. was in, I was, it just blew my hair back when I was like, Whoa! Oh my God. It is so awesome. Like literally a billion pieces. Like it I said sh- before, it, it is shock the shit out of me. Yeah. Hey, how about the, some of the, uh, some of the kooky weapons, like the gun with like five, 10 barrels in the, the splitting oh, dagger. The splitting dagger, yeah, yeah. And, and the uh, guy with the chain. The guy with the chain, which actually feels like a like a like, like a, a kill ninja <laughs> weapon, yeah. <laughs> a ninja uh, weapon, yeah. Absolutely. Ninja weapon, we'll call it. Yeah. Uh, was that racist? <laughs> I. Well, anyway, you're not getting canceled. Over. You're fine. <laughs> um, and and uh, dog sword was pretty gnarly too, right? Dark dog sword. Yeah. Like I, a serrated. I wish, I wish like a bad guy's sword is. Yeah, it was very bad guy-ish. Like it, it needed to like be on fire at some point in time to make it a little <laughs> that bit. That would be very cool. Yeah. I just wish that that showdown was a little bit better. And I'm pretty sure if you're sitting in front of a cannon and someone lights it, you have approximately like 15 seconds to get out of the way. Like, that was a pretty short fuse, Brad. If, yeah, that's – yeah, whatever. Well, yeah. the cannonball physics in this don't work. So you pointed out, I think, Eric, that cannonballs or Brad, maybe you said this. I mean, I don't think they hit a building and explode the building, but no. a cannonball shot into somebody I would have thought would go through them, not carry them. It would out. go through them. Yes. Okay. Especially at that close of range. Like, yeah, yes. there, there's like, yes. uh, you know, I've seen armor, you know, have yeah. you ever seen the oh, yeah, photo on the internet of the armor and the guy got hit with the giant the hole went right through the armor. So, you know. Old dog just has some some cruddy little jacket on. That's he does, he does CrossFit though. Why did they climb to the top in the middle of the fight? Because it's a pirate it film. Cool. Because it's a pirate movie. Like you, you they're fighting, a, and I'm like, okay, we got the show down. It's time. Yeah. Like, can she do it? 
And then all of a sudden they're just climbing up to, she has to go back and get Shaw. He's drowning. Right. I, I and think, they decide to climb to the very top of the crow's nest or whatever. I, I think the trope is this. So they do it because it's a pirate film, right? But at yeah. any point in time, if you are on just equal footing and you know the other person's a better swordsman, then you have to go to a place where you have an advantage. And so she- Are you made, talking about the high ground? High ground? Saying she's yeah. Anakin? Yeah. She, <laughs> she has to get up there where, you know, she might have an advantage on the mast versus, you know, just on a, a regular landing. All right. So, I'll buy that. Yeah. Good, good. I tell you. Know, now that you mentioned that, this is, <laughs> you know, the sand is very coarse, and I don't think Anakin would like this movie either. So, <laughs> no, it's hey, I it has the uh, the script and the dialogue probably of episode two. Of, of episode two. Yes, it yeah, does. It does. And you ask about those weapons. I I thought they were kind of cool, but I wish there was more to it. Um, I just yeah. felt like they were, you know, you. You showed them and you used them and that was it. I, I don't know what the point of it is. That's true. She she splits it open. She's at one time. We sword, never really you, see it. The sword, yeah. you mean. She splits her sword open. Yes, her <laughs> dagger. Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, they were they were cool, but you never saw the guy shooting the spread. I thought of Contra immediately, that guy with the spread gun. Oh, yeah. Oh, good right? point. That's that the awesome. spread gun. But uh, yeah, I mean cool designs didn't really get to see them in use so i much. do like the monkey that was actually reloading all the guns that was cool yeah with the yeah. little uh, he was holding Charles? the gun well they well they were giving they him were the hand. gun and he was putting the little is he loading it yeah he was loading it he's putting the ball i mean it. i'll i'll i'm always happy to see a monkey in a film i'm with you I'm, i i, I gotta say monkey. if thank goodness the monkey lives at the end so spoiler the monkey makes it uh yeah. king charles is good and if you have a monkey as a strong supporting character. I'm I'm in. Like I like your movie. Now, if the monkey is obnoxious, I I'm not in on that at all. But I, I do what think about, a monkey can swing what about, one way or another. Uh, in my opinion. Outbreak because that has a monkey, but it has I feel that's like the, that's it like patient obnoxious. zero. Yeah, but that yeah. monkey was obnoxious. Okay. Yeah, he just that's not a good example. No, the monkey. Uh, the, the monkey and the Clinice or he's a orangutan um, in every which way but loose and any which way you can. Right turn Clyde. Yeah. That's that an eight. But that is yeah, a, okay. <laughs> it's not a monkey. No. Okay. Well, then my theory's shot to shit. No, right. no veterinarians <laughs> on this scientific show. on you. God, okay. Stop, I get we stopped science after the quicksand discussion. <laughs> I thought we were still in the science. Clyde portion. is a monkey. <laughs> so I do want to bring up one last thing. I because Modine and Gina Davis have zero chemistry, I almost at the very end was like, he's gonna double cross her because he really doesn't like her. Because if so, they would have been a little bit they would have had way more chemistry than they have. So I'm waiting <laughs> for this like double cross at the end, because A, he's a pirate and that's what they do, and it never happened. And he's I was a like, thief. Well, he's I not a pirate. I, he's not a pirate, he's like a thief. He's a thief, mm. basically. Yeah. Okay. I mean, oh, I'm sorry. Thieves. So thieves are supposed to be way more. He doesn't. He doesn't rape. He just steals things. He doesn't rape people like people. on the sea, right? So, uh, well, she takes him on the sea. Okay. He was on the land before. He was a land thief, which right. doesn't get a special name like pirate. <laughs> True. That sounds like more science talk, but okay. Just a la- <laughs> just a land thief. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, you guys ready to uh, make the big decision? I see. I I thought I was. You thought you were? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, yeah, let's go. Let's do you want to go first or do you want Brad to go first? 
I'll go first. All right, Eric. So the big question, we have just spent a good amount of time talking about the history of Cutthroat Island, all the troubles leading up to it, and um, sharing our thoughts and feelings, uh, and obviously a little science here and there. I will we'll say that monkeys and apes, as long as they're ob- not obnoxious, I hope that pleases you. But yes. 1995's Cutthroat Island, big question, is it a bomb? Uh there's a lot of good stuff in this movie, visually, particularly the action. Uh, but I'm going to say it's a bomb. Oh, my I'm gonna, goodness. I'm going to go with bomb. It's a bomb. It's a bomb. You shot a yeah. cannonball right across into that boat. It's a huh? bomb that will explode. <laughs> it's a bomb exploding a ship that seems to be completely full of dynamite. Okay. From it, its very base to the very It might top. be made of glass. That boat might <laughs> honestly be made of glass. All right. Well, it's time to ask the guy where fun goes to die. Um, Brad Anderson <laughs> is Cutthroat Island a bomb? Absolutely a bomb. Wow. Absolutely. Harsh. It, and the thing that, that holds it back is the script and the characters, and just the plot itself, and everything that's not uh, some cool action scenes. But you said this thing moved at a pretty good pace. I thought this movie felt really really long and boring i felt the two hour time even like that opening like credits i was like dude are we is this really going to be a 10 minute credit scene because if so i'm out but it was like a shade under 10 minutes it was like eight minutes i was like so anyway yeah there was a point where i i was like okay we're probably getting close to like the finale here and i was over an hour out and i was like oh okay. yeah well i think the opening credits is like some of these people figured you know the company's going bankrupt this might be the last time we're in the credits (laughs) so let's like get our money's worth so anyway but no Troy, it's a bomb i'm gonna be the minority i have a lot of fun with this one i will definitely watch it again um had i again will look at it through the prism of a pure 90s action film and I think it is one of the better action films made in the 90s. Uh, I, I just have a lot of fun with it. And I do think, I, I think you, how you started your description, Eric, is, is kind of perfect, is that if you're looking for that roller coaster ride, that theme park sort of visual, and you don't go into this looking for that deep script or you know just an awe-inspiring performance, and you go, hey, I'm looking for just a good old-fashioned action film, and it's a lot of fun. I, I think the spectacle in this thing, the way it looks, I think it's a gorgeous film. The production value is all there. Regardless of that there's not much for the lead characters or performances to do because the script is so shallow, I still think it's fun to watch them. It's definitely fun to watch Gina Davis and Matthew Modine do all of the action sequences. Yep. I think Frank chews through the scenery the best that he can, again, with a stereotypical villain role. Um, I, I find nothing but a lot of fun with this film. So, yeah, it has its flaws, and, and I, this thing wasn't going to win an Academy Award for performances or anything else. And I, I, I don't understand, when you look at the technical aspects of it, why this thing would ever garner Rennie Harlan a Razzie Award for Worst Director. I think he got nominated for this one, right? He did. Nominated Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Director. I think that's... That's a terrible nomination because I think... Yeah, that's maybe unfair. Yeah, yeah. The, the directing behind this and especially the work that he was doing with Vic Armstrong is, is fantastic. I think that's the highlight of the film. Yeah, um, that had I, to have been influenced by the performance. 
being so bad. Right? I, I actually think this movie gets a bad rap for all of this stuff leading up to it. So this is the type of film that something like the raspberries would kind of pick on, you know, like they would do with Waterworld or something else and say, Hey, look at this film. Look at how much money they spent. It only made $10 million. It's a piece of shit. And, and here's the other thing. And I don't know what you guys think about this, but I like Waterworld. I think Waterworld's a lot of fun. But I like Waterworld more than this. Yes, I absolutely like Waterworld way more than this. Yeah, I, I don't know. But they are similar. It's way dumber, I mean, though. Yes, it is dumber. Yeah, yeah and, but in a way, I like that it's dumber. I don't know why. I need to go back and revisit because it's it's been longer. I'll say this. I've watched Cutthroat Island more times than I've watched Waterworld. So I think I like this one a little bit more. But mm. I think I'm ready to go back and revisit Waterworld now after seeing this. Because, again, I think there's a group of these films that were just unfairly treated because of the news behind the scenes or somebody would look at the numbers, et cetera. And, and one of the things I like about this podcast is I do like talking about the numbers. I like talking about the stories leading up to the release of a film. But then taking a step back and go, hey, knowing all of that stuff, can you still enjoy this thing? And can you take it for what it is and on its merits? And you know, again, if a if a film in the first 15 minutes sort of establishes what it's going to be and then it sticks to that identity, I will forgive that thing. But if a film in um, Sunshine being one of those where it wants to be everything and it doesn't really do that very well, I will probably take a more critical view of that type of film than I would for Cutthroat Island. And I know that's weird. It's just that I know what Cutthroat Island is supposed to be and it lives up to that. And, and for me, I, I think that's not a bomb. I don't know, man. I can't well, get behind well. your, this is one of the best action movies of the 90s. I, I think it is. <laughs> when you said that, I almost left. There's <laughs> a lot of competition there, but. Uh, like, to be fair, like 90, 1991, the same company puts out Terminator 2, <laughs> about the same budget. And Terminator 2 is a, like, a billion times better action film than Pirates of the Caribbean. Well, this is, but it Pirates doesn't have that exploding boat, man. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, but no, that again, boat is. Termi Woo! Terminator two is a great example. The script is fantastic. The performances are fantastic. That movie lives and breathes in its world and it's, it's everything. Um, and even the action sequences are fantastic. I think the action in cutthroat Island in some cases is just as good as some of the sequences in Terminator two. The problem is you just don't have the performances. You don't have Cameron directing. You don't have that screenplay. That's where Cutthroat Island like misses. And and again, yeah. I, you know, I, I think your analogy is fantastic, Brad, on the bands. I mean, if you want some kind of um, sloppy action work that looks a little bit more realistic, the camera's going to stay on the actors and you're going to see everything. This is your film. If you want something that's John Wick, slick, choreographed, it looks great great, go watch that film. They, they kind of serve two different purposes and they're, they're getting to the same thrills, just different ways. I like what this thing brings to the table. I will never watch this movie again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's just too damn loud, too damn long. Okay, old man. It's too loud. Get off my lawn. <laughs> awesome. Well, Hey, um, let's, let's do some listener feedback real quick. You want to start with our, our first email? Yeah, um, this comes by the way of Philip. He said, I was just uh, rewatching a favorite movie bomb in my DVD collection. DVD collection. Awesome. Um, against Oliver Stone's 1991 psychological thriller, The Hand with Michael Caine um, and some cast of very good character actors. It's one of those film movies I don't like for probably all the reasons the marketing 
people wanted me to like it for marketing people. You can't trust them. No, no, <laughs> that's true. Um, where was I? Uh, oh, the whole killing hand thing is silly, but also just a metaphor for the character's psychological breakdown. It tells an interesting story of marriage that is starting to show signs of deteriorating and how our rage and anger can just spiral out of control, dealing with disability, loss of career and family turmoil, how it, it all slowly com- compounds. <clears throat> I didn't like the movie when I first saw it on cable in the 80s, but I rediscovered it on DVD some years ago. I even read the book by Mark Brandel called The Lizard's Tale. Uh, Michael Caine has said he basically did this film for the money. That's such a Michael Caine thing to say. Um, He wanted another thriller after the success of Dress to Kill, but The Hand never achieved the success of that film. Definitely a flawed piece, but it is one definitely had me looking at it with fresh eyes years later. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it. Troy, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess you're gonna say I have the hand on DVD or something or some special edition. And go ahead, tell me. <laughs> I I have the hand on DVD. It was part of this box set. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's actually a pretty good film. I think we should add that to the list. It would be a good discussion because the people behind the camera and in front of the camera, I mean, we we get to talk about their careers. And uh, I I agree with Philip. First time I saw it, I saw it very young, really didn't get it, kind of thought it was boring. But then when I bought that box set and watched it again, there was something there. It's flawed. It's definitely flawed, but it's good. Okay. So Philip also sent something through our social medias. I can't remember which one, but uh, he said, enjoyed the podcast. Nice to hear that you're going to tackle Cutthroat Island next. I remember seeing that at the time. I always enjoyed Gina Davis and it looked like it could be a fun movie. From what I remember, my initial impression was it being a fun, action-filled popcorn film. Not great enough to want to buy it and watch it over and over, but I remember enjoying the night at the movies, some escapist fun. I didn't really have good experiences with the genre. The only two pirate movies I had seen before that were 1982's The Pirate Movie, which based on this, I found out I had a copy of that and I hadn't seen it for a while, so I went and watched it. (laughs) Oh my God, Brad, I think I sent you... A yeah. clip of one of the songs. That clip. <laughs> it's, Did you have it just I'll, keeping a table level in your house somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> one of the legs was short. So yeah, yeah exactly. somewhere in the basement. Um, he has this really big beer mug. It makes a perfect coaster. It does. <laughs> uh, a musical with Christy McNichol and Christopher Atkins. In 1986's Roman Polanski comedy Pirates with Walter Matthau, which I think that's on Amazon Prime. I might check that out. The other one I'm I went, curious about that. Yeah, the other one I went back and watched was Ice Pirates from I think '84, just because I I saw that sitting next to the pirate movie. And I'm like, well, hey, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have some pirate themed fun this week on top of Cutthroat Island. Uh, Ice Pirates, oh my gosh, it's fun to see Ron Perlman, Angelica Houston, stuff like that, much younger, but. Wow, what a film. I, I don't know how that thing got made. It, it may make one of our November turkeys. I'm curious how well it did. I need oh, to go back wow. and research that one. Um, and then he also sent us an interview with Rennie Harlan about Cutthroat Island, which um, thank you so much, Philip. I, I did read that, and it helped me kind of put some notes together. And then two other, two other feedback things. Um, this one's specifically for you, Brad. Nathan wrote in. And sent us something and said, I came across this discussion on Pulp Fiction today. I learned a fair amount, but I haven't read the book written by guest Jason Bailey. It may be old info, especially for Brad. So, Brad, did you know anything about this book or that link that Nathan sent? Yeah, yeah. Um, but he sent a 
to the podcast and he says some things that I think that aren't in the book. So I want to actually go and, and listen to that. So, you know, anything and everything Pulp Fiction, I'll, I'll dive into. So send Brad's way. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Lastly, um, from some messaging from our good friend, Sammy, who, uh, does a show gentleman's guide to midnight cinema. You need to go listen to that. It's a fun podcast. Uh, we got a couple of messages from him. So the first one, you know, I listened to your guys episode on bad Lieutenant Portocol, New Orleans, and it occurred to me that the alligator point of view thing might, and this is a stretch might be Herzog's commentary on even animals find us destructive and less than what we think we are. Been thinking about this morning, either way. Awesome show guys. That is an awesome insight. Did you think about that, Brad? No, I'm not that smart. <laughs> no kidding. That's interesting. I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but uh, I mean, that feels like it could be something. That's That feels like the best legitimate answer. I, I've been yeah. <laughs> trying to figure out the animal stuff in Herzog's movies, especially that one, is really hard to come by. And to me, of everything I've read, that makes the most sense to me. So Sammy, spot on. He also went on to say, because um, Brad asked him, who's right on the ending? His response was, Brad, I hate to say this, much respect to you, but I have to give this one to Troy. So winning. However, later, he <laughs> lost all his cool points because he wrote in and said, just finished memoirs episode. Got to say I'm with Brad on this one. That movie is a catastrophe. Sorry, Troy. I can't share your optimism on this one. Wow, that film is a mess. So sorry, Sammy. You <laughs> lost your cool points that you gained. Yeah, for... that's what you get when you both sides it. Yeah, yeah I know. I can't <laughs> take a stand, man. <laughs> But uh, thank you, everybody. The, uh, again, we love having these type of discussions, especially on something like Bad Lieutenant. Um, that is a fantastic perspective. We would love to hear what you think about Cutthroat Island. Obviously, I'm in the minority on this one. Um, Brad and Eric are, are calling this a bomb. But Brad, if they want to write to us and share their opinion on this pirate masterpiece, how would they get a hold of us? That's uh, notabombpod at gmail.com and notabombpod on all social media. Um, yeah, keep keep it coming. What else you want to know, Troy? You want to know what we're watching next week? Yeah, I'm curious because I can't even remember, nor have I looked at the list. So this is episode 40. You're doing episode 41. It's an odd number. What are you picking for us? Oh, we're going back to 2013 to a science fiction film put out by A24. It is Under the Skin, starring Scarlett Johansson. And I believe we have a guest, um, but they're tentative right now, so I won't uh, won't say just in case something happens. But yeah, um, that movie is uh, going to be an interesting discussion. Sure. I'm looking forward to listening to that one. Science fiction meets art house, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, this is very navel gazing right here. So it should be interesting. Should be interesting. Um, yeah, I saw that movie in the theater. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to go back. So wow. I was one of the people that saw it in the theater. Yeah, I, I, I saw it, uh, I think, when I bought the Blu-ray. So this will not be my first time watch. Um, so that will be a curious discussion. I have a question for you, Troy, and I know the answer to this. I don't know why I'm asking. Have we done a movie that you didn't already own? Have we done a movie that I didn't already own? No. Okay. <laughs> I didn't think so, because you ended up having the beast. This is how I feel on my podcast, because Josh has everything. And no matter how many movies I collect, I still don't Look, have Look, it's an close. addiction. Yeah. I, and what's made it worse is, again, our good friend Sammy – um, God love that guy, but now he sent uh, a app 
that oh, you yeah. can look up like when movies are on sale digitally. And I'm a big physical physical media guy, but I just happened to download this app and and I downloaded it on Saturday and, and from Saturday to Sunday. So in a matter of two days, I bought three movies already because they were like three bucks. And I'm like, oh, I got to own this. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Now I've got a bigger problem. But uh, well, Eric, man, I got to tell you, I love VHS files. It it's Thank one of the highlights. So I mean, it, it's it's okay. It's okay. Don't listen to Brad. <laughs> no, <I just laughs> no, no, Troy, continue. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love the chemistry. I, I've told Josh this on and on. Um, I do feel like when I hear you guys talk, I'm in the room. It's like going to the video store and having that discussion when you're trying to find that perfect movie and going back and forth about this. I think the Die Hard episode is still my favorite. It's it's one of my top five movies of all time. I loved hearing Same. your guys' take on it, but um, please plug your podcast uh, one more time. Tell them where they can listen and how they can reach you guys. Yeah, um, the VHS files, uh, anywhere you get your podcasts, um, and uh, social media is the VHS files. What is it? VHS files podcast at VHS files podcast. No, the, excuse me. VHS Files podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I think that's it right now. Do you know my uh, favorite thing about the podcast, Eric? Uh, no. The logo. The logo oh, is, the logo is sweet. amazing. Yes. Thank you. you. Know, I just wish, you know, I knew someone that could maybe at some point in time you know, hook me up with a T-shirt or something so I could wear it. Well, but, you know, I don't know. Yeah, we might be able to do that. We, we did a small run. We'd probably be doing some giveaways soon. Uh, and I'd like to start selling some merchandise as soon as there's enough of a base to do so. Uh, but thank you. Yes. And, uh, and I will say, I really enjoy your podcast. I really enjoy the, the, the premise of revisiting bombs. I think that's a great idea. And you've, you've found like a, a really nice concept to go with your podcast and it's been a real pleasure and I, I appreciate you having me on. Oh no, we, we're going to give you more movies to pick from cause we definitely want you back. Thank you. Yes. I, I'd happy to be back. Awesome. Definitely. Well, Brad, and I looked before you oh. came on because I know, are you a, a Florida State graduate or do you yeah, just like yeah, Florida? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I went to UK, so I had to look and UK is actually has a winning record against um, your. <laughs> oh my yeah. God. They do. They do. I have, a, I have and, a Kentucky and football. Friend. And football. I was surprised at the football. Well, that's because they've only played like once or twice in history. I think it was like four times, three times. Oh, yeah. It was like it's, two to one. They've almost never played, so that's yeah. why. Yeah. But yes, you're right. You do. You do. Uh, you can hold that over my head but for sure. You all are a four seed in this tournament, and Kentucky is has nine wins. So you know, whatever, hey, whatever. You know, <laughs> I don't really happens. follow the basketball so much, yeah. but yeah, yeah. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Right. Troy, sorry, thanks. No, no, that's I beat up our guests some more. Go ahead, yeah. razz me some more. <laughs> Jeez, um, hey folks, I'm very, I'm very insecure, guys. Okay, I just need. Obviously, <laughs> it's been tough. <laughs> no, I like it. I like it. Okay, well, listen. I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, the evening. I hope you're having an awesome day. Please go and listen to the VHS files podcast it is an excellent listen lots of great episodes and thank you for listening to us give us your feedback send us uh some more recommendations we can't wait to hear them and with that we will chat with you next week thank you have a nice day bye-bye <laughs>